and welcome once again to Radio Warfork, the podcast where we go where take two. The podcast where we go through Terry Pratchett's Discworld one book at a time, rating, reviewing, discussing, analysing, and this week we're talking about the fifth elephant. This week I'm Colin. This week he's still Steve. Still Steve. Still Steve. And it's a lovely day today, so you know, you should really thank us for sitting in and recording on a day yeah. like today. We could be out. Well, we could be outside recording this, but you know, a live show on the beach. Mm, that'd be um, great. And this week we're talking about the fifth elephant. And once again, I have forgotten to write out a synopsis. No, but, uh, the hell with it. We were having fun with this uh, going over it this way. So yeah, um, yeah, I think it works well. So, uh, so, so the fifth elephant basically the plot kicks off when um, Lord Veterinary asks Vimes to be his ambassador to Uberwald um, because the clacks which are like a system of semaphore signalling towers, have uh, improved communication across the disc world to such a degree that it's sort of making the world smaller. It's kind of facilitating, um, I suppose, a kind of globalisation and globalised trade in a way, in a way that maybe railways and the, uh, the telegram and so on would have in the 19th century. Um, and uh, Vimes is reluctant, but... Uh, Veterinary talks him around to he says they, they need to go and they need to arrange a deal for um, uh, fat for the, the fat the produced fat by overall yeah. is yeah, hugely valuable to Ang Morfork because of they use it to make candles and um, soap and all sorts and uh, he's attending the um, the crowning of the low king yeah. the low king of the dwarfs and a ceremony which requires the scone of stone I believe it was called yeah. Um, so, which essentially acts as a sort of uh, cushion or throne on which the low king is sat upon. At which point, that's his essentially his coronation. How he becomes the low king. So he gets sent off, and he well, brings well, first Carrot, uh, who's obviously of dwarven um, adoption, knows that the region a little better than Vimes. So he brings Vimes to the dwarf bread museum to see a replica of the scone of stone, and then it, that replica ends up getting stolen later. Uh, but Vimes doesn't have time to investigate this. He leaves his carrot and he sets he sets out to Uberwald with um, with Sybil, uh, his wife, with Inigo Skimmer, a mysterious cleric um, uh, who's appointed to yeah, him by appointed Lord to him Veterinary, by uh, with cheery little bottom um, detritus the troll, and it's supposed to be annual, but she's she's gone AWOL. Mm. Um, so he sets off to get a watch of being good hands with, with carrot. Um, taking care of things in a stead, but then Carrot gets worried about Anya going AWOL, and he goes, he leaves the city to follow her, he gets uh, services of Gaspo, the Wonder Dog, to help mm. help him track Anya, and this leaves um, Sergeant Colon in charge of the uh, watch. In a wonderful little subplot <laughs> where uh, it's, it's a little bit like Lord of the Flies in a way, where <laughs> Colon takes a manic control of the watch, only to bring it down into ruins within a couple of days. Yeah, he ends up basically sacking half the watch. Um, he gets increasingly paranoid about him stealing his sugar lumps and <laughs> undermining his authority. And that prompts uh, Nobby Knobs to start the Guild of Watchmen to basically retaliate against the whole thing. But we're getting sidetracked because um, in, in Uberwald, um, while he is on the road, Vimes discovers that the scone of stone, and can I just say, I know we're going to say the stone of scone at least once yeah. during well, this. Well, it's, it's, it's based off, like it's obviously a reference to the stone, well, it's spelt stone of scone, but pronounced stone of scoon, I think, which is a Scottish, um, like, I think it used to be uh, used to crown Scottish monarchs, mm. um, and, and it literally is like a stone, and in fact, even the, the current uh, Queen of Britain, Elizabeth II, was 
when like the she was crowned, the, the stone was inside like the wooden throne she was sitting on to oh, kind of cool. confirm her as Queen of Scotland as well as England and Wales. Cool. cool. Um, but um, yeah, Vimes discovers that the uh, scone of stone has been stolen, and oh no, sorry. First, he discovers that the de- the replica in the museum back in Morpork that's been stolen. Yeah. yeah. And also that a man named Sonky, Sonky, yeah, Sonky, who, Sonky uh, who makes who, Sonky's unmentionables, yeah, aka condoms. Yeah, he's like the only. Uh, Pratchett used to boast that, like, you you have to travel far and wide to find another condom factory in a fantasy novel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, basically, they deduce quite quickly. They think someone's used Sonky's vat of uh, rubber to make a, another to use the replica in the museum to make another replica like kind of make a, a rubber mould that will be mm. used to make another replica of this of the uh, scone but uh, Carrot initially kind of dismisses the idea that this could be used to fool any dwarves because he says they because they would immediately know if it was a yeah. fake or not because if you're a dwarf you just immediately know yeah uh, so, so on the way to Uberwald uh, they're set upon by bandits uh, Vimes' party is and he's, he's very surprised by the um, prestigious fighting skills of Inigo Skimmer who fights off most of them and he, he arrives in the uh, the embassy of Ankh-Morpork which is serviced by an Igor not the same Igor from <laughs> Carpenter Galen there's a lot of them yeah they're all um, part of the same family this I, is the town of Bonk yeah or Bionk Bionk as it's pronounced in the book I really shouldn't have, but I just found that joke so funny with all of them, all of them calling each other Igor, and, and knowing like when they say, "Oh, go and tell Igor," they have a specific one in mind, and another Igor will just know <laughs> which one they mean. And, and just that bit when Vime shows up to uh, Lady Margalotha's castle, and another Igor gets up, he's like, "What the hell are you doing here?" <laughs> I, I don't know why. It's just such a simple, obvious, yeah, silly <laughs> joke, but I found it really funny. Well, but at I, this anyway, point, so. He gets to the uh, embassy. Igor tells him that they don't know what happened to Sleeps, who was the old ambassador before mm. that, the old ambassador of Ankh-Morpork. And there's basically three main powers in Uberwald. There's the low king and the dwarves. There's Lady Margalotta, who's kind of vampire aristocrat, who, who would, uh, was a history of veterinary. She kind of reminded me, the description of uh, Lady Margalotta reminds me a little of uh, Professor Umbridge from uh, Harry <laughs> Potter. Bit, yeah. Because, you know, she has the big pink, uh, pink sweater and she has like a, what was it, sequins all over her furniture <laughs> it's like this is like bizarre like the similarities between the two yeah the veneer of uh, sweetness with kind of like danger underneath mm. and then of course there's the vampires who or not the vampires the werewolves, the werewolves who are actually Anguus uh, family. family yeah um, so, so Vimes goes to meet each of them when he goes to dwarves um, he, he quite a, he has a quite a hostile meeting with the, the low king initially uh, or the would be low king but also the also Sorry, yeah, his right hand man, uh, D, the ideas taster. Yeah, <laughs> who's essentially a kind of it kind of comes across as sort of the Grand Vizier or mm. something like that, um, in a way. But, but uh, I don't know if he has that much actual power. I feel like no, he's like more he's of an more assistant, like, like, like yeah, like a Wayland Smithers. Like, like yeah, his, his power is in deciding who gets to see the king rather than wielding the king's power directly. Mm-hmm. Um, I should say too that the the Reese Reeson, who's been elected Low King, is kind of like a compromise choice because basically there's this tension between the more modern uh, dwarves, chiefly based in Ankh-Morpork, and the more traditionalist dwarves uh, based in where, well, everywhere underground. No, <laughs> no, but, but but there's Copperhead and there's what's the other places? Um, Hammer or but, something? Like uh, yeah. In any case, the, so um, basically uh, the Reese not having the the scone would be disastrous because he sort of his power kind of hangs by a thread mm. because he has been elected by a compromise 
and one volumes goes to Ceres and has a kind of tetchy meeting with D, the ideas taster, and he and Detritus kind of stand up for Cheery, who's obviously a sort of seen as a kind of abomination by the rest of dwarves for uh, openly flaunting her her gender. Um, he uh, he quite quickly deduces the the scone has been stolen, and this really freaks D out, and he initially won't admit it to Vimes. He then goes to see. He kind of has. Um, There's a meeting with the Lady Margolotta after that, isn't it? Yeah, he? yeah, and, and and with the werewolves after that. And those meetings are sort of short and kind of um, it's it's basically and he finds it sort of hard to hard to get a hold of him. He doesn't trust Lady Margolotta at all because she's a vampire. But she's very civil to him, mm-hmm. so it seems that it it certainly seems like she's on his side, and it kind of comes across that it's just Vimes' prejudices that are coming out that are coming to the fore at that point. And uh, then, of course, when he meets with uh, the werewolves and they're just essentially he feels that they're just eyeing him up and just like dying to pounce on him. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, they only meet Angua's mother and father, not uh, Wolfgang, yeah. Angua's brother, who is essentially the main villain of this of this piece, even though it's a complicated book with almost a multitude of villains in a way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, I actually, remind me, I want to come back to that because I, I think that's there's, there's a lot of interest in there. But, um, mm-hmm. but so he meets... He meets them and then they, they go. Okay, I suppose next thing after that, say go to the the uh, dwarves for it isn't is it no it isn't the coronation because they haven't got no it's not the coronation ceremony where they're doing an opera and while that's going on, Dee takes Vimes to show him where the scone was and admits it was stolen. Vimes and Cherry are kind of um like they're they're uh, the examining yeah, the crime scene and Vimes seems to think uh, the reader's never told exactly why but he seems to kind of think that this could have been stolen really easily and that mm. there's like something fishy about it and they go back in to down to the main chamber with the rest of them and as the king comes out the chandelier's about to fall and Vimes pushes the king out of the way and signals to Detritus who catches the chandelier and prevents any harm from coming mm. to anyone but Vimes wakes up and he's been arrested for this, this crime. The crime of touching the low king, which apparently, even though apparently there was another occurrence years ago where uh, the king fell out of a boat and was nearly drowning, but nobody would touch him because it's illegal. And it was decreed by law this was the right choice yeah. to do, even though the king died, which is a very interesting uh, you know, law to you know, put into effect, but there you go. Um, so while he's in the prison, Vimes discovers a one... Uh, the crossbow that uh, Inigo Skimmer has the one shot crossbow mm-hmm. which is a stealthy assassinating sort of weapon yeah so well, someone I always thought about it as like a you know like, like a kind of I suppose like a, a Beretta or like a yeah, like PPK a, exactly like yeah. like the small sleek weapon you could kind of easily hide about your person but of course Vines immediately suspects that somebody wants him to use this to try and kill one person which will of course immediately have him killed so he doesn't use it uh, he just knocks out the guard instead. Uh, how does he do that again? He um, I, I, isn't they come in and I think he just ends up kicking one of them in the bollocks. Something. <laughs> yeah, the the, the, the tried and tested Vine technique of escaping <laughs> prisons. But anyway, he uh, tries to escape and he is climbing out of the mine shaft and he nearly falls when Lady Margolotta shows up and basically saves him from a very very long fall down a mine yeah, shaft. Yeah, but but then she dumps him in the middle of well in the middle of a forest really. Yeah. And then Wolfgang shows up and... Um, he explains the tradition of the chase, yeah, which yeah. is essentially uh, people can challenge the were- werewolves uh, to basically a race back mm-hmm. into uh, Bianc. And if they win, they get, I think it's 4,000 crowns or something like yeah. that, isn't it? Uber-walled crowns. 
But if they lose, of course, the werewolves are allowed to kill them. And apparently, this is also part of Uberball's law. So, uh, lore. Lore. Not the law, the lore. They they make a major distinction between that. But, of course, now, Vimes clearly doesn't really have a choice in this. He's not really challenging them, but they're challenging him, rather. Mm -hmm. And he can't get out of it. So, basically, the chase is on at that point. Uh, he's given an hour's head start, if I remember right. Yeah, and he, he sort of he puts up a decent kind of uh, fight, but it, it's clear that combination of his unfamiliarity with surroundings, his ageing body, and the fact that they're werewolves, he's end up going to die, and then he's rescued by Angua and Carrot At the very last minute. Yeah, when basically, basically Carrot ended up finding Angua. We, you know, um, Carrot and Gaspod, who Angua had been going with this pack of wolves who were led by a wolf called Gavin. Gavin. Which it's mm. kind of implied she had a relationship with before. Strongly implied, I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and then, um, yeah, so uh, she sort of like reached a kind of bit of a detente between, I suppose she's pulled between Ankh-Morpork and Carrot and Uberwald and Gavin. Mm. And she's not quite sure where she's going to go, but her and Carrot and, uh, and the pack are travelling together. It's a bit like that film Brooklyn. Angu is basically Saoirse Ronan. <laughs> uh, I think Uberbald is in a Scorthy, obviously. <laughs> and Brooklyn is clearly like more pork. Um, uh, the last time I was in a Scorthy, I saw people hairy enough to qualify as werewolves. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so once this happens, uh, Vimes feels that he solved the case, essentially. Yes, yeah, I'm sure remember what happens after that. Then they... they do, do they go? No, no, they go. They go back to the the werewolves' castle. Yeah, first. Where, where Sybil has been. She's kind of under she's sort been, of house arrest, like by, by the werewolves. Mm-hmm. They go into Freehor, but she escapes herself while this is going on. And a lot of stuff happens in a very short space of time. Yeah, there. yeah. Then then Angua shows up, and basically they uh, he, he deduces that the werewolves, um, along with D, stole the scone to cause a civil war between the dwarves. That they're pretty sure Albrecht Albertson. Who was the, uh, the the runner up in the low king contest and is much more of a hardline conservative than Reese? They're pretty sure he'd win uh, and then kind of I suppose like withdraw Uberwald from any trade with Ankh Morpork or outsiders. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Angua, you know, demands to scone back off her mother. They get it. They they leave and all seems relatively well. Well, Wolfgang oh, is yes, there sir, at yeah. this point. Well, and um, first of all, breaks Carrot's arm. That's a really impressive moment <laughs> in the entire Discworld series. It's one of the first times. I think it's the only time where Carrot's really bested by anybody. Yeah. which is really impressive. So um, he breaks Carrot's arm, and then after that happens, Gavin jumps in and attacks uh, Wolfgang. They're both. Uh, he's a werewolf at this point. And eventually, Gaspo jumps in to help Gavin. Gaspo jumps the in. Three of them go tumbling off the drawbridge down into the, the river below. Up in the stakes in the most emotional way possible. Like everyone knows if you kill a dog, that's emotional. But three dogs! <laughs> oh my god! Like they open the emotional stakes like one thousand percent here. <laughs> but uh, but um, now, of course, uh, the only. Well, yeah, I was about to say no spoilers, but that's exactly what we're doing here. The only one of them that actually does die, unfortunately, is Gavin. Gaspo manages to survive, and uh, he eventually finds his way back to Ankh-Morpork on a, on a ship. Exactly, um, yeah. All at the end, but uh, we'll come back to that. Um, at this point, um, Vimes goes to the Low King and like the dwarves because he has figured out that mm. um, the scone itself was not actually stolen but destroyed within the chamber. And they were going to use the scone that they got off the werewolves, which is a fake, to replace it. Yeah. So they bring this to um, the Low King, 
and the low king determines that the fake st- uh, scone is actually the real scone. Yeah, of stone. yeah. And he gets he gets Albrecht Albertson in to confirm to the confirm same. It, and Albrecht's apparently an expert in uh, the 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 lore of the scone, and you think he would have the most vested interest in saying this is a fake, because then he'd have another shot at becoming king. But he confirms it's real, mm. um, and then D sort of has a breakdown and admits to. Um, he was the one they're, they're who destroyed just, it. Yeah, it's, it's supposed to be that they, earlier you learned from the, the opera they have on about the, the forging of the scone, that it, it contains like a, a, like a granule or a nugget of granule pure of truth. of the truth, yeah. yeah. And there's truth. this uh, uh, kind of folklore that if you put your hands on it and lie, it will burn your hands. Mm. And the, uh, the king gets D to put his hands on it, even though D keeps insisting, well, it's a fake anyway. And is asking him about like, whether he stole the scone, did he kill the... Uh, um, the lamplighter. Yeah the, uh, the, the, yeah, the lamplighter, who was the, the guy who uh, reputedly killed himself out of, in, out of kind of remorse after discovering the scone mm. was missing. Uh, and, and D almost feels like his hands are getting bored and he takes them off and he, he admits to stealing it and he kind of... He's accusing Reese, uh, the low king, of throwing away the traditional ways and letting people like Cheery, um, you know, kind of... Uh, cast off traditional dwarfdom by admitting their femininity and then in doing so he admits that, that he's he, a woman he's also um, he and, is and actually a she yeah and, and he has a jealousy of that it was a very angry breakdown up to that point but then it just turns into self-pity really that yeah. you know he's he's basically a conservative female dwarf who's feeling really repressed and it's a really great scene in that point yeah. actually yeah, it's one of the really really complex interesting villains inverted commas like uh, mm. <laughs> the, that the Discworld books have had so at this point um, so Vimes is confused by the whole idea of why the ki- the Low King and everybody is just lying saying this is the scone of stone but uh, the Low King basically uh, tells them that they've had about seven or eight scone yeah, of stone so yeah. far because it's, it's reputedly 1500 years old but he says like the first one broke after 300 years exactly so they keep making it again and again and uh he uses the metaphor of he gets his axe and he says it's been in his family for generations. But sometimes they have to replace the handle yeah, or sometimes, sometimes they have the blade, but it's still the same still, axe. Yeah, it's still the same axe, which is that thread of continuity. Um, which we get back to it, but I, I really like the way that's uh, dealt with. There's, there's mm. a kind of I suppose like a real deftness in dealing with the power of tradition there. But as Vimes is at this point almost catatonic, like he's on the point of exhausted exhaustion. Sybil uh, negotiates with um, with tremendous panache and uh, force uh, a really good deal Frank Moorfork about the fat with the low king they go off to the back to the embassy all seems to be well and then uh, Wolfgang shows up again yes exactly and uh, Vimes uh, go basically Wolfgang and Angua go into a bit of a scrap that isn't really resolved and Wolfgang runs away again and Vimes gives chase mm-hmm. and essentially he kills Wolfgang by shooting a flare, he shortens the fuse in the flare and shoots it up in the air, knowing that Wolfgang would jump up, grab it in his mouth, and then it explodes and kills him. Yeah, yeah, throughout, throughout the whole thing, there's this point about like the werewolves by being kind of between human and wolf, sort of end up part dog in ways like mm. they keep reacting uh, very negatively whenever Vimes mentions Bass. And yeah, then, exactly. Yeah, like Angus' dad, the, the Baron in particular, has uh, I think it's he's been. He spent so much time in wolf shape that he kind of can't quite like uh, speak with the same articulation that her mother or her or Wolfgang can. So mm-hmm. like that's sort of a foreshadowed early that kind of that um, a Pavlovian dog response, if you will, from yeah. Wolfgang to the to the firework getting thrown. <laughs> and then he goes back, and Sybil tells him she's pregnant. 
Um, and we find out Vimes is going to be a father. Yeah, and he finally takes a holiday. That is a and really Karen good... And Karen would go home uh, to Angkor Park. They discover what Colon and Nobby have uh, done. Yeah. <laughs> and um, basically, uh, Carrot is... He exhibits almost a really cruel streak in that... Uh, he, he basically says, uh, we won't tell Vimes about this, but you have to go and like recruit everybody and just be warned if this ever happens again. And he doesn't say this like with his words or anything, but he just kind of very subtly implies, I will fuck you up yeah, <laughs> if uh, this um, happens again. It's right at the end here. He says, uh, However, each of these men took the king's shilling and swore an oath to defend the king's peace, said Carrot, tapping the paper. An oath, in fact, to the king. And it's like, you know, or he's really leaning heavily on the fact that you all know I'm the, the king. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's, it's rare that he directly uses that power, but yeah. he goes there. Um, and, and that's it. And uh, what does it say about that book that I feel it's probably the, the longest summing up we've had to do so far? Uh, okay, I'm going to say a controversial opinion now. Considering how much we've loved all the guards books so far, they've all been great, very atmospheric, but... Um, at least of the ones we've read so far, I think this is the best Gars book that we've that we've read up yeah. to this so far. It's go so, on. No, it's just, it's um it's it has a very it, it ticks so many boxes. Like there's uh the one thing that we've always talked about uh, in previous books is Carrot and Angua's relationship. Although it's intriguing, it feels like it doesn't really have an arc. But here it feels like it does. It feels like it's actually gone somewhere mm-hmm. as opposed to just kind of holding out until. A certain point. I mean, we've talked about um, in Feet of Clay and in Jingo. It feels like something's going to happen, but then at the very last minute, it's just kind of like, oh well, no, no. And we keep saying, oh yeah, but they bring this up in the last elephant. And I'm like, it might be a flaw of those books, but it works out really, really well in this book. And um, a lot of characters are explored really well. Uh, same for Sybil and Vimes's relationship. I mean, this is definitely the best book in terms of how much we get to see and hear of Sybil who is a great character, but and I didn't... It's strange, because she's great in Guards, Guards, but she's somewhat... She fades into the background. She does that, fade yeah. into the background a little bit, but here she's brought up right front and centre again, and she's great. Um, yeah. I think my favourite... It's wonderful that... Um, they, I, think, I feel like in a subtle sort of way that's acknowledged, because um, there's that bit at the start where... Well, in the midpoint, where they're attacked by bandits, and Sybil is crying, and she says, "I'm sorry, I let you down, Sam." And it's and he's like, "You think you let me down? What?" Um, and you know, it's true because it does sort of feel like she's playing up to this idea that she's just like this meek, modest person. But as the book goes along, she shows herself again and again to be this really capable character who's just really adept in like really terrifying situations, like where um, you know where she's being held captive by the werewolves, and she gets out of it like really well. And also in the negotiations for the fat mine, she's sensational at that. She's just excellent. And even um, she sings the opera, <laughs> and the, she sings the opera as well. But even when um, they go to the the opera event before that, and uh, Vimes refers to her, "Have you met my wife, the Duchess Sybil?" And uh, Sybil uh, thinks to herself, "Oh, uh, Vi- uh, Sam hates it when she uh, hates the title of the Duchess. So if he's calling me the Duchess. He wants me to out Duchess everybody here." <laughs> yeah, and yeah. she goes around and she smarms to her heart's content. It is, um, yeah, it's, I, I can, re- I really appreciate how much she's put into the limelight, because not only that, by putting her in the limelight, and I, I'm not, I don't want to imply that her purpose is only to serve uh, Vimes' character, but that's definitely a great benefit and a plus 
of her character, the fact that this is the woman that Vimes has essentially fallen in love with, and that gives us an in into his character that we haven't seen quite as much before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think there's a nice parallel with uh, the relationships with um, like Sybil and Vimes and Ango and Carrot, where the tension is somewhat similar in both of them, where I suppose both of the, um, the women worry that the men in the relationship value their job more than they do their relationship mm. but Sybil and Vines are clearly on much firmer footing than Carrot and Angua. I mean Carrot literally spends half his book uh, trying to find Angua and you know like reconnect with her whereas Vines and Sybil are uh, like you know uh, almost always together by the point when Vines gets arrested at the end um, and like they're forcibly apart then so like there's a really nice balance in seeing this guy I suppose like uh, you know desperate uh, attempt to rekindle a relationship with Carrot and Angua alongside this very solid kind of um, like pleasant uh, secure know, they know each other so well kind of marriage like I love that part where Vimes and Sybil are in bed and Igor's taking down all the, the taxidermy trophies <laughs> and they're guessing what one it is based on the uh, and then the it, sound. it finishes with uh, we heard a sound that sounded like when you uh, twang a ruler against the edge of a table and they both just say swordfish at the same yeah, time yeah, yeah. so that's great <laughs> or, or the part when Vimes is talking about Wolfgang and he says he's a bottle covey you know one of those guys will keep fighting even long after he shouldn't and she says yes I know the type and it just <laughs> has a thing about how it would be weeks before he you know he uh, realized what you know what the little smile she gave meant. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. There's a real sense that I suppose like the kind of uh, mundane little pleasures and moments of togetherness and you know tiny things that uh, a long term relationship or marriage are built on with them. Mm. You know, it's not these. It's often not these big romantic moments. It's like all these Just little the things little adding up. Um, yeah, that, that part when she cries after to get uh, attacked by the, the bandits is. I think it's wonderful because uh, uh, there's a part, I can't remember if it's before that or afterwards, where he says Sybil was a rock compared to her detritus was a sponge. Yeah. And it's, it's very true and it's a superb compliment, but at the same time you really see she has sort of, to a certain extent, internalised that and feels so bad when she can't be all solid and bluff mm. and hardy and practical when she just has the very understandably human reaction of, you know, breaking down in, in tears of shock when you've just almost got getting killed by these... Uh, Mm. these bandits um, and yeah and, and uh, like the oh there's this was the moment this is, uh, so like okay we've since we since we uh, came back from our post Hogswatch uh, break right we read Jingo mm. which was had a lot of really funny moments and character moments but was kind of imbalanced and messy yeah. and mm. then we read Last Continent which had really fun concept and ideas but felt kind of shallow and stretched and Rincewind didn't make for much of a protagonist and then then we were at Carpe Jagalum, which had, again, great character moments, you know, a lot of, a of re- cool ideas. Bit of a retread, though. Yeah, a bit of a retread of Lords and Ladies, Small Gods, maybe felt a bit oversupped ideas. And it did have me wonder, and I, 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 there was still, I, I enjoyed all those books, and there was one... It did feel like, were, are we, were we on the descent now? At this yeah, point? are we like, past Pete Pratchett? And yeah. then, like, Jesus, Mary, and fucking Joseph, <laughs> this book came along. It's, and it's, was, yeah, it's and, not... And the moment, the moment I realised that was um, where... Oh, um. I think I mean am I right in thinking that um, I don't remember this being as good as it was I just remember it was like good but I didn't remember too much of it and then when I read it it really just came as a massive shock like did you have a similar yeah I'd read, it, I, I'd read it once years ago I got it from the library and um, uh, and read it um, and I remember really enjoying it then but like it, you know 
it, you know, there are so many Terry Pratchett books that have similar writing style and stories. It's easy for it to just get mm-hmm. lost, despite the fact that the stories themselves are great. Okay, so here it is, page page fifty two. Um, there was a Sam Vimes she knew who went out and came home again, mm-hmm. and there was another Sam Vimes who hardly belonged to her and lived in the same world as all those men with the dreadful names. Sybil Rampkin had been brought up to be thrifty, thoughtful, genteel in an outdoor sort of way, and to think kindly of people. She looked at the pictures again in the silence of the house. Then she blew her nose low, loudly and went off to do the packing and other sensible things. And just that wonderful bit where it's like horror kind of in this really small, subtle, uh, kind of private way contemplating the fact that her husband does this incredibly dangerous job and who knows when will be the day that she'll, um, that she'll have like Carrot calling to the door saying, oh, you know, Commander Vimes is killed on, mm-hmm. on, on the job today. And the stress that must put her under while she just has to, you know be home and kind of, I suppose, like, keep house and provide support. And she's just been taught to be kind of, I suppose, like, thinking of others the whole time um, and having to, like, hide those um, parts of herself that just, I suppose, wants to worry or say, like, hey, you know, you, you owe it to me to be a bit safer um, mm. because, I, I, you know, I love you that much and losing you would kill me. Oh, yeah, it's just, yeah, it's, it's wonderful. I mean, she's she's only one of like many many great things about this book which is a really great thing about it yeah I mean I know I haven't even looked at my notes yet because I'm still gushing a little bit but the one thing I think has to be said is the relationships in this book like the two central relationships between Carrot and Angua and Vimes and Sybil are a massive boon for this book like it's great books are I mean you can get great stories about and uh, you know great writing but a great great relationships really help a book stand out and we get two amazing ones here so it's um we're really spoiled in terms of uh you know it's it's just like a, a treat to finally get to the point where these characters are specifically uh, i think carrot and angular they're kind of reaching a peak moment because we've been waiting mm-hmm. for this emotional moment to happen i think what really sold it for me is the fact that in jingo uh angua jumps on the ship and it sails away and Car- the first thing Carrot does is go back and report it to uh, uh, Sam Vimes. And I remember Vimes sa- says something along the lines of, oh my God, why didn't you go chase her? And it's like, well, I wanted to tell you. He says, of course, that's the sensible thing yeah. to do. But in this book, the exact same thing kind of happens. Uh, Angua runs off and he goes and chases her. I know, admittedly, Vimes... Is- <laughs> leaves, leaves colon and chases Yeah, he basically, like, he, it, he literally... He finally gets to the point where he allows himself to be emotional because he leaves his job and basically everything falls apart back in uh, Ankh-Morpork, which in any other book would be catastrophic for a uh, character to deal with. But in this case, he's just like, I need to chase Angu. That's where my loyalties lie. And it is. And it's really satisfying to finally get that confirmed, both for ourselves and for Angu, who reacts in a really typical angry away by saying being frustrated saying you came with no food no clothes but you can still tell that she's happy that he chased her yeah well I I think there's two things that I suppose like resolve um, other than the the death of Gavin which uh, you know takes takes away complication of the uh, choice that you might have to make Mm. but there's two things I I think that for her you know uh, bring it home to her that like okay uh this is going to work with Carrot. The first is that, as you said, he abandons the city and he, he finally proves that he cares about horror more than he cares about the job, uh, which he's, you know, always doubted for the whole time. Mm. And the second one is when, when she says about, like, if she ended up like Wolfgang, 
would would he uh, yeah, go after her? And he goes, yes. And she says, promise. And he, he says, yes. And I, and I really feel like... That gave me chills. Yeah, that was incredible. such a great moment. But I, I feel like she's always emphasised how she doesn't feel at home or fit in in Ankh-Morpork. She doesn't fit in with her family. And like in Ankh-Morpork, she's always kind of worried, I suppose, like losing control. Mm. And... Uh, you know, and, and and basically giving in to her inner wolf, so to speak, and you know, uh, becoming a killer. In fact, she's it, I think it was very like Vimes in a lot of ways with that kind of sense of inner darkness that they're trying to restrain mm. the whole time. So she's always said this, and I suppose she's always had the feeling, and maybe we as readers have also had the feeling that Carrot doesn't really take that seriously because of his like starry-eyed optimistic view of people and the four in particular that you know she's struggling with this uh this this choice and to restrain herself the whole time and the whole time he's kind of thinking oh well you know you'd never do anything mm. really bad because you're you and you're uh you know you're a good person and so on and in a way i suppose that puts even more pressure on her to be uh you know to be as perfect as she thinks he thinks she is yeah so for him to say yeah if it ever came to it and you went rogue i'd i'd do the right thing and uh take you down i, I feel like for her it shows that he understands the struggle she deals with yeah then, you know it's um, a beautiful moment yeah. and it, it's so great because when you're reading that particular uh segment it sounds like would you be the one to chase me down and it almost sounds like you know cynical you know it's like you know, will you be able to come down and, and chase me down and kill me? And you're like, you almost want to say, no, I couldn't do that. Yeah. Which is a really kind of um, romantic cliche. Yeah. But it means so much more that he says, yes, I would be the one to take you down because, like, I understand her struggle and I want to be able to do what I can. And that's exactly what she wants him to do. So mm -hmm. it's it's beautiful. Can I throw a, a possible idea at you now? Um, do you know we were talking about when Carrot and Wolfgang fight? And it's the first time the carrot has ever really been bested in any kind mm -hmm. of fight uh, or any kind of competition of any yeah, kind. Yeah, that's, that's so impressive. It really builds on yeah. everything we've had about him so far. Yeah, and because it's constant. It's always been a constant state of, you know, carrot is basically invincible. I think when we first meet him in Guards Guards, he said to... Have, he punches out the tritus. Yeah, he punches out the tritus. <laughs> and like, it's like, how did that work? That's impossible, you know. It's, he's basically, he seems invincible. So the idea I want to put forward to you, I remember... When Carrot meets Angua again, she says something. She says a lot. Um, You're too nice, and you know why can't you just like you know go in a rage or like complain or something? You know, uh, the implication here very obviously being you're too perfect. You need to do something wrong. Like, what would you think of the idea that maybe he lost that fight on purpose? Well, I've heard the theory that like there's there's so uh, that he lost it on purpose because he knew Gavin would intervene and then Gavin would get killed. Ooh, um, that's dark. I, I don't think even. I know, yeah, but but it really um, that like it re this book really leans on the idea of is he as simple like that bit that we discussed at the end when he comes back to no Colin Nobby and it says you know, like I know they want they want to do right by the king um, mm. and and he, he like he shouts at Colin but only to do it to kind of rouse him out of his yeah his state of stupor. Uh, and and there's bits where both Angua and Vimes keep thinking, God, you really believe that, don't you? When he says something very, mm. um, you know, very simple and all, and and we're we're never really in his head. Like when when it's just him, we get him from Gaspard's point of view. Yeah, you um, never get things from his point of view ever. Yeah, so like the, this this is the book that re um, I think like as much as um, any of them set the idea that maybe there is more uh, knowingness or self awareness to his. Uh, apparent 
innocence than, than might be the case but I don't know if I, I think like maybe there is but I don't think there's so much of it that like he got you know he uh, planned to get uh, Gavin killed I think maybe if if, if veterinary ended up in car- if veterinary and carrot ended up switching bodies um, like Lex Luthor and the Flash did on that episode <laughs> of the Justice League cartoon uh, then that's the thing veterinary would do <laughs> yeah in Carrot's face you know it's, it's kind of like I, I can't I can't imagine Carrot being quite that cold and Machiavelli but, can you but see, do you mean lose the fight to sort of I suppose to puncture this air of invincibility yeah like I mean the idea that he went into this fight like uh, like you know what's the name there's that method of fighting Marcus of Antilia yeah, yeah that that that, that specific way of fighting which is almost like you know show fighting and it's yeah. not really as effective as typical street fighting as vines underlines many times um, there was a lot of rhyming in that <laughs> um, but I'll put a beat on it in the I, edit I feel like Carrot is smart enough to know that I mean you can, you can definitely see from most people's point of view that oh yeah that is something Carrot would do he would go the noble way the noble route but he's smart he's, Carrot is a smart mm-hmm. character so you can kind of see Surely he would know that this isn't a ca- this isn't the time for that sort of thing. So what if he went into that knowing that he'll be defeated or bested in some way, but also he's confident in the knowledge, like he's he has faith in uh, Angua, in Gavin, in Vines, in Detritus. He has faith in his men, basically, that they'll be able to get him out of the bind because that is the kind of thinking that I think Carrot would have. Maybe, yeah. I mean. It's a theory. Or I, I kind of read the, the Marcus of Antilia stuff. It's just another uh, bit of underlining the the difference between sort of civilization and the wildness of Uberwald, which is a huge theme in this book. Yeah, um, and 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 Advimes, having spent more time around Wolfgang, realizes that he'll have to um, go down, go down to his level, so to speak, to you know, to to fight him like that. He can't. Mm. Uh, play fair and Carrot, having just you know, he's been in Uberwald a while, but he's just been with Angua and the Wolfpack. Um, he still comes in doing it the way he would like more pork and that he would have this sense of like oh well this is Angua's brother so I've got to you know kind of play mm-hmm. fair even if he is a bastard but certainly I, I could like I think there's uh, it's, it's, it's very it's, credible like what, it's what something you that you could say is there like I'm not saying that's definitely what Terry mm-hmm. Patchett was thinking when he wrote it but I feel like you could read it that way if you wanted it to yeah um, coming back to what you were saying about civilization and uh, you know uh, modernity and you know the wild wildness of Uberval tradition. That's huge in this book. I feel like this is um this I, I, I love this because it works on so many levels. Uh, do you remember when we started doing this and uh one thing the one thing of the things we commented on about Terry Pratchett's writing style is that he basically takes um he basically takes, you know, uh Tolkien's work and puts his own like modern spin on it. This feels like this book in particular feels like the logical next step of that. It's almost like a postmodern look at you know that we're acknowledging this is kind of the real world with like you know fantasy tropes like kind of dotted around with the place. condoms and semaphore towers. Yeah, you know all and these trade negotiations. And essentially, like we have the internet now, you know, with the clax towers and yeah, all this sort yeah. of thing. Certainly, um, like he from here we'll get the the truth is after this, right? That's our next. I one, think yeah. the truth is coming after this. So, yeah. so like, this becomes a big team going on in the discworld, kind of modernizing, and it certainly um in contrast to, say, stuff like soul music or uh, moving pictures that had, um, or even Reaper Man to an extent with Shopping Center, that had these kind of, a Discworld twist on these modern innovations from our world. Mm. And they come in 
and we have a bit of fun with them and then they're vanquished and the status quo is restored yeah. and from here they will be incorporated into a, a changing this world and I, yeah, I like it a lot and, and to be honest like it really helps keep the books fresh and interesting because so many uh, fantasy books do like wallow in this medieval stasis yeah. um, and often if you're just doing like you know a trilogy or a I know like a quintilogy or whatever like a single enclosed series mm. it doesn't matter too much but if you're kind of telling loads and loads of different stories in the same world there does come a point when you kind of you want that world to change you want the world, world to might. evolve like yeah. it naturally would yeah quite organically um, yeah it's there's a there's this great emphasis on that. Uh, this really comes across with the central MacGuffin of the Scone of Stone, in that you know it's constantly being like broken down and created anew. And like I think at one point, Reese Reason is that, that his name? Yeah, yeah. He says that oh yeah, the stone that we have now is far better than the one we had like years and years ago. And I realized <laughs> this point came to my head, and I realized oh my god, they even tie this into the story. It's every. Um, modern invention that comes around the likes of the clacks or um you know everything that they're updating to make better uh, modernizing things they're literally uh, you know trimming the fat which is what vines is going to uberball to do like he's literally trimming the fat from there <laughs> it's like oh my god this works this is actually it's one of the great strengths of this book is that so many of so much of the symbolism is really well weaved into the story you know, yeah. I mean, the whole, the idea of the, the axe metaphor and the scone of stone and, uh, you know, how uh, modernizing, how important that is uh, in terms of uh, the character's view on, like, actually that, actually, that was something else, just to bring it back to Carrot again. Um, I found it interesting that he was against uh, the Sonkies at the start of it, you know? Yeah, yeah, but that, that felt very true to his character. In the it same it way really he, did, uh, yeah. He initially takes a little while to get around to Cheery, um, Cheery's open femininity, uh, and, it, and it's kind of like that, like he kind of unquestionably uh, adapts Vimes' prejudice against the undead. That mm. <clears throat> there is a naivety about him that allows him to, uh, to fall into this sort of. Um, conservative mistrust of, of modernization or change. But you know what's interesting? Although it'd be very, very easy for most writers to simply make the conservative traditionalist um, the villains and the you know forward-thinking mm. uh, modernists to be the heroes. It'd be very simple to do that. But Terry Pratchett doesn't do that here. Like, I mean, he does emphasize the need to modernize things. You have to... You know, it's important to uphold uh, traditional values. And there's that great moment where... Um, Cheery is going to the uh, coronation and she's dressed in uh, traditional dwarven gear. And says, you know, you can wear whatever you want. He says, yeah, I know. The point of it is I can wear whatever I want. It doesn't have to be against tradition. It can be whatever I choose it to be. I thought that is fantastic. I mean, it would be so easy to just constantly have Cheery wearing more and more lavish, uh, you know, gowns and like, you know, let's keep going with this. Like, let's, Let's just have her in a bikini for the next one, you know. I, but I, the fact that they acknowledge the fact that she is still withholding her traditional values while, you know, uh, you know, accepting modern values, which is the key point, I think, that the book is trying to make. Yeah, it's a nice follow-on from, I think it's in Fida Clay, when she's uh, appalled at the idea that now that she's feminine, she'd shave her beard. Yeah, yeah. 
but or no, she's an openly feminine rather, and, and I really like it because I got I thought when um, when we get you know that bit when they're going to see a it's Blood Axe and Iron Hammer is it is the opera, mm. and it's a love story and Vimes can't get over the fact that they don't <laughs> know or care what the gender of either of them were, <laughs> um, and Cherry just says well they're both dwarves and that's the important thing. Mm. And of course, this was kind of framed from from Peter Fagan going into this that you know the traditional dwarves way is very uh, repressive towards uh, gender identities and so on, and you know it's kind of the the cheers of this world and indeed the D's of this world have been repressed by this, and and it needs to kind of change to allow people to express the, their identities. But yet, the dwarves way of looking at things with well, they're all dwarves. I mean, that in its own way could be seen as really. Uh, you know, progressive and subversive from the point of view of our world. Like, if you look at, say, um, Judith Butler talks about this idea of uh, not only gender but sex as a construct whereby, say, we're kind of assigning different categories based on different genitalia mm. in a way that, like, is from a certain point of view kind of arbitrary. Like, I'm, I'm really simplifying her ideas here. It's been a while since I read it, but you could theoretically, we, you know, why don't we have, say, different categories of person depending on hair colour or eye colour or something you know like where, well where you have gingers yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, worlders I, I do take what you mean though but yeah. yeah you know that we have all these that we have all like that it, it's sort of this arbitrary um, she's arguing like you could see this as arbitrary distinction we've made that has then resulted in a uh, you know, uh, I suppose repression and a, a narrowness of the roles both genders can aspire to. So you could read the dwarves way of doing things as actually much better, you know, and that the the Cheery's femininity is sort of like Angkorpor cultural imperialism that she is just you know in Angkorpor and kind of thinking, oh, I just want to look like what passes for cool and glamorous in Angkorpor. But I think the important thing of it all is that it comes down to choice. Is that she for her it, is, it isn't simply that she just wants to ape whatever the latest fashions are in Angkorpork because as you said you have that wonderful moment where she's like I'm choosing to dress like this and again she doesn't shave her beard and still carries the axe around and so on uh, and it's not like I suppose it's it's her, her way openly accepting dwarves like her that want to say yeah I'm female and I'm you know like wearing a dress now doesn't mean that forcing every dwarf who's biologically female to wear a dress, you know, mm. it's more about the choice element to it. And I just thought, like, there's a lot of deafness there that... Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a complex it, approach to the whole thing, because I know you're saying that you could look at it as a very positive uh, representation of, you know, femininity, but by this, I don't think you can 100% say that, because when you get right down to it, the dwarves are 100% repressing, like, uh, women, you know. like to, You know how uh, we've, we've always read in... Um, when when we were studying in college, you always see how women in history have often been made invisible. Yeah. And in this case, it's a very literal case of, like, women are literally turned into men. Yeah. So but that's but not a positive it's, it's way. It's not quite the same in the fact that, like, the individual women mm. are obviously, they're still able to kind of, uh, like, carry out normal lives. In fact, it's implied at the end that one of them has become yeah. king, right? But that's only provided, yeah. in the initial stage, that's only provided that they are... They pretend mm. to be men. Now it it, does, yeah. it works out really really well because almost through subversion they've made they've you know made women into almost an equal power um, to in the in in the dwarf community. You know, yeah, it's yeah. Um, it's yeah it's it's it, it, there's there's a, there's it's a complex issue that uh, takes a complex approach uh, to how how femininity works and. Um, 
it's uh, there's there isn't really an easy answer to it, which is good. I think it's it's mm-hmm. it just gets you thinking about it in a lot of different ways. At least it, it does for us, anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I I, I really like um, how it's done because that element of like what what you were saying there is sort of covered in Fiddy Clay. I think there's a quote where uh, when Anua says to Cheery that she knows she's female, she says about like, oh, I I don't know like what you're worried about. Surely you have it easier than human women. Um, because you can just do whatever you want, and she says, "Yeah, I can do whatever I want, so long as it's what the men do." Uh, yeah, so it's, it's, a, it's a double, it's a two-sided axe, you could say. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, like, I feel that this book uh, expands, uh, I suppose, like a, a lot on that by uh, going back to this idea of like the dwarves repressing all gender, and you know what, like, I suppose it presents it in a way where even though you. Uh, I and you and I imagine a lot of readers read it as a good thing that dwarves like Cheery are getting kind of more freedom to uh, choose to uh, how and when to express their identity. It it kind of presents the traditional dwarven view of gender like in a life where you can understand why it's sustained for so long. Like it isn't just this like they're all bastards who just want to you know repress women because they just like like hurting people. You know like mm. you you can see. There's, there's more. You know, you can see uh, why it's there and why the Albrecht Albrechtsons of this world are, are you know, are clinging onto it. Yeah, for, exactly. For more than yeah, just yeah. because they're baddies. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I, I do love that part where, like, a, I, I think the bu- book as well does a great job of like really um, underlining the bravery of Cheery to go to this like uh, stronghold of dwarven tradition as as uh, as, as, as like openly female true uh, like where paradoxically it shows her bravery by showing how scared she is mm. you know, going back to what uh, Ned Stark says at the start of A Game of Thrones Bran it's the only time a man can be brave is when he is afraid um, <laughs> Good, but, excellent impression there uh, <laughs> but you know that, that she, I think she, when her and Vimes walk out she's like shaking and, and he, he deliberately changes the subject or, saying oh yeah it's, it's a shock when you get like the cold air on you and she's like really gratefully like, yeah yeah that's what yeah. that is yeah or, or when, when one of them says to slur at her and I, I love that detritus just instantly like he, he recognises it and he says you know, you say that again basically you're, you're going to be peeling yourself off the wall yeah um, but, but again those, those bits they don't just make her as like a kind of damsel to be rescued by Vimes or detritus and more underlines like it She's incredibly brave to do this because of how clearly uncomfortable it makes her. Like it mm. wouldn't be as big a deal if she swanned in there, being like, "Yeah, fuck all of you. I'm comfortable with you know what I want to do." Yeah, it might be kind of satisfying, but like the, the sort of like the slow drip of her kind of having to you know fight through each moment and and get to the point at the end where she's at least confident enough to kind of speak uh, to the king. Mm. Um, yeah, it's much. It's much more interesting, and I feel kind of relatable. To, yeah, it, to read it, about. it wouldn't resonate on a cultural level if, like, it had just been a case of, yeah, I can do whatever I want because I'm a badass female dwarf. Because mm-hmm. um, people don't talk like that. And <laughs> but um, I've never described myself as a badass female dwarf. Uh, well, I've never described myself as a dwarf. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, it's 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 great. I have to say. Um, this is one of those one of the few books that I feel like we're going to be able to talk for ages and eventually we're going to have to cut it short because there's so much yeah, in yeah. it like it's just a huge amount so um, let's get to the villains while we're on it because I loved it in this yeah. one they're great why, 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 do you imagine Wolfgang is played by Rutger Hauer in Blade Runner 
And he's just <laughs> a little bit, actually. Like, well, blind as Harrison Ford. And he's like, ah, <laughs> civilised. Are you? I've seen, yeah. <laughs> I've seen ships blow up off the Dunhouser Gate civilised. <laughs> Are you just thinking that because, oh wait, no, he breaks his fingers, doesn't he? He doesn't break his, uh, his arm. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking that, yeah. But it's, it's that air of kind of absolute like vitality that a normal man can't match when like uh, Roy Batty is leaping across the rooftops and Deckard is staggering around mm. and that kind of wide-eyed madness and the element of being this kind of a uh, um, standard bearer for a new and terrifying age for his people. <laughs> there's a lot of there's a lot of similarities there. I think uh, he's probably I suppose he's getting on a bit now. But if we mm. could you know get get a go at a TARDIS to Dreamcast and Fifth Elephant adaptation and have Rutger Hauer as you know eighties uh, Rutger Hauer. What I think makes what I think makes the villains in this like I mean if we eventually boil it down to it's um, the key villains are Wolfgang, but he's not he's not the main villain. I think if you're going to go for uh, inverted quotes uh, main villain technically it's D but D is a really pitiful character so it's it's almost like the main villain is um, you know someone who just manipulates someone else and it's it's great because it's it completely goes against the archetype stereotypical villain that um, Terry Pratchett has done so far it's always been this one character who's just an evil bastard, you know, or who just happens to manipulate or happens to be a badass. And you've had, we've had Lily Weatherwax saying, ooh, that's terrifying. It's uh, Granny's younger sister. We've had Mr. Teatame, who, great villain, I will say, um, is just like this really, really sadistically evil and really badass assassin. You've got Vorbis, who's like this really conservative, again, great villains, but yeah. they're all lacking a little something. Um, I'm not saying I'm not saying any of these are better, but it's really refreshing that it's kind of a weird duality where the two main villains are seriously lacking in some areas, uh, but make up for it in other areas. Like D is really pitiful, but like the based on the fact that you don't realize she's the villain until the very very end is very satisfying. And Wolfgang is I don't know what it is about him. I think it's it's not even. He's just got lots of great little moments. That too. I was, I was <laughs> going to bring that up actually because they had he's wearing his black uniform with the the silver like like wolf's head pin uh, <laughs> eating the the thunderbolts. Um, I was thinking, oh, okay, he's a Nazi. Well, I, I started thinking that when like you know it has it, they describe him as blonde hair and blue eyes, you know, and the fact that he's Wolfgang, which is a typically German ner- yeah. name, you know. So uh, yeah, no, it's it's great. Um, it's great because first of all. There's a couple of facets to his character that really make him resonate. First of all, he's related to Angua, so there's an emotional connection with somebody. Mm-hmm. Second, he bests uh, Carrot, which no one has ever done before, yeah. which is hugely impressive. And third, the entire chase with Vimes brings out something very, very primal in the depths of like Vimes' character. I mean, the, when you were talking before about Sybil thinking about the other Sam Vimes who's running through the streets and uh, cha- giving chase to villains... This, this, uh, and and I can't really sum this up in a simple sentence, but this is a play on that. The fact that someone, for once, is chasing Sam instead of the other way around, and he's not an Agmorpork where he's basically the commander. He he at this point kind of owns Agmorpork. I mean, at this point, Terry Pratchett needs to find excuses to bring Vines out of Agmorpork in some sense or other yeah. to make him ineffectual. So here they bring him out into the wilds where he's completely unfamiliar. And uh, he's forced to become uncivilized, basically. Yeah, there's those bits where he's fighting with the other wolves, and he really has to hold himself back from kind of uh, 
just from from killing them. There's that, like he says, like a small voice in his head saying, "Kill them all," um, and it it sort of sets up some of what we'll get in Nightwatch with that. That when that inner conflict in him will be the the beast will be more explored. But I I think why Wolfgang and Dee work so well is that I think what what what's been an issue with some of the previous villains is you essentially have um they need to be defeated in two ways, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they need to be defeated conceptually and in a physical practical sense. So conceptually, kind of what they represent and what they think needs to be defeated and shown to be, you know, wrong or lacking or hypocritical or, you know, harmful, whatever else it might be. Um, and then physically, practically, obviously, you, you need, like, it, it, what isn't enough in most cases for the hero just to kind of give them this, like, uh, uh, you know, moving speech that shows everyone uh, that their you know their way of thinking is horrible and they go away usually you need some like in some of them i think in the best of cases he manages to combine the two like with someone like dios who is essentially defeated by them talking him down yeah, and, yeah. you know but otherwise you have situations like say your um reservation with lily weatherwax where like i love that bit with when you see granny and her in the mirror and granny gets out because she always knows what's real and what's yeah. practical and lily will be trapped forever but so that's the kind of conceptual way she's defeated but the practical way is her sort of, you know, having a bit of a, a like a, a panic attack when uh, Baron Saturday shows up. Yeah. Um, likewise, Vorbis is sort of conceptually defeated by Brutta at the very end when Brutta go, you know, t- agrees to take him across the desert mm. when he's just been there for a uh, hundred years. But is physically defeated in this sort of madcap but slightly deus ex machina way with, you know, uh, arm being dropped on his head and killing him. It's not slightly deus machina, oh, it's, it's literally literal. deus ex okay. okay. machina. It's literal, but it's, it, I suppose your, kind of, your mileage may vary on, yeah. on like how, you know, how random it, uh, it is. Likewise with, um, uh, say, Dragon King of Arms and Peter Clay is, you know, conceptually defeated with volumes coming down and talking to him and, exp- uh, like, talking about, um, you know, basically... Uh, deconstructing his whole plan and they get really annoyed when he doesn't know who uh, Mrs. Yeah, and William Easy are uh-huh. and then Vimes burning down the, the heraldry college but he, he's sort of practically defeated by is it like Dorfolk comes in and, and uh, knocks him out when oh no it's, it's the candles the can, like Vimes says garlic and the candles oh yeah yeah, yeah. Um, whereas here you can split the two so essentially Wolfgang is the one that is like practically physically defeated in a really exciting scene um, mm. And there is kind of there's obviously conceptual things there where you have Vimes using the symbol of modernization, the firework from the from the clacks it also, to defeat Wolfgang, who's this throwback to you know this wilder uh, age world. But more or less, it's just like it's a really kind of fun, exhilarating chase. And then D is the one who's conceptually defeated, where they go in and and uh, yeah, Reese just kind of like basically. Gets D to break down and confess to her. Yeah, they don't have crimes. to do anything forceful with D. They literally have to say, "We figured you out," and that's it. That's yeah. the end of that. But the the Wolfgang thing, I really like. I mean, again, I it's funny because I don't think Wolfgang. If you would kind of just describe his character, I don't remember him being really interesting. But he just has interesting moments and interesting relationships, you know. And one of my favorite bits, and this is another bit that gave me chills, is. Um, just after he shot the the flare and uh, you know Wolfgang's caught in his mouth and it blew up and it essentially killed him. Mm-hmm. This is the point where uh, there's this amazing, incredible line where after the entire crowd crowds have gone silent and you know Wolfgang is dead at this point and Vimes realised he's killed him and he says uh, there were a lot of things he could say. Son of a bitch would have been a good one, or he could say welcome to civilization. 
He could have said, laugh this one off. He might have even said, fetch, but he didn't. Because if he had said any of those things, then he had known that he, what he had just done was murder. And that gave, that's another moment in the book that legitimately gave me chills. Because I realised when he said it, the first person that he kills is the other werewolf in the water. And Although they, they later claim he hasn't killed any of them because he can only kill them through fire and silver. Yeah, yeah. But at that point he thinks he yeah, has yeah. killed them. So, and you can see, like, even though this is a life and death situation and his, like, his life uh, hangs in the balance, it still strongly affects him. And he's still worried that he's going to go to this point where he'll just become an, a killer that's always in his mind. And this is, like, this is when Vimes is kind of at his most stressed at any point because he is highly strung you know he knows this is someone who has to die and he doesn't he has to force himself not to enjoy the moment you know he can't he can't do the one-liners that Aaron Schwarzenegger does he can't just rattle something off and say haha screw you guy because if he does that he's not he's not the person Carrot and Sybil and everyone thinks he is then he just becomes a killer and the fact this, I mean, this is this is something that we've always come back to, the fact that Vines is a character who's constantly in conflict, and that's what makes him interesting. He always has an internal struggle going on. Anyone who can be easily figured out, it can. the journey can be fun, but once they figure themselves out, they stop being interesting. Vines is always interesting. Yeah, yeah. That uh, listener on our Facebook page, whose name, unfortunately, I don't know, because it's in a non-Roman alphabet, I think it's Hebrew, um, <laughs> said that, uh, like it's great to see Vimes out of his comfort zone here in a way that he sort of isn't in Jingo even though he leaves on Morpork he has basically the whole watch with him you know mm. so it doesn't really feel uh, like you do have some bits where he's kind of musing on the desert and, and how it, 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 um, how it's so different but he doesn't really feel out of his depth the way he does here mm. where he only has Cheery and Detritus from the watch and obviously later Carrot and Angu showing up well, something um, that always does come up, um, something you always see, uh, Vimes gets very relieved when he basically has to chase down a villain because, ah, oh, this is nice and simple, yeah. the chase. And I think that's why Jingo doesn't work as well because for the vast majority of that, when he's going to um, Clatch, it is still a chase. Mm-hmm. Whereas at this point, uh, it's not just like the fact that he's geographically out of his comfort zone. He's forced to be an ambassador. He's forced to be... He's forced to live up to all the titles that uh, uh, Veterinary has like shoved onto him that he didn't want. Like He literally has to become the person he does not want to yeah. be. And he actually does a pretty good job of it for the most part, you know? Like, it's, like he, he's completely... Un- from his friends. Yeah, exactly. He's completely unorthodox, but he does a great job. Yeah. So, um, you know, that's, that's really interesting. Um, I, I think like, a big part of his appeal, as we said, comes from him being you know, an underdog. And it's difficult because he's not really like an underdog in many senses where he's this very powerful vigor and like Morborg with a lot of resources and, and wealth and so on. So even when you take him out of his comfort zone here, like he's still sort of an underdog in the fact that he doesn't know what's going on, but he's still this important figure in being the ambassador. So it's like he can only be an underdog here as a copper rather than uh, as an ambassador, you know. So like the fact that he's going to... Uberval and kind of throwing his weight around and you know like there, there's a lot of moments where he's just sort of bullying people and be like hey Detritus tell him what's going to happen if he doesn't let us true or whatever mm. um, and like I feel all of that works because at a certain point he just gets so caught up with like finding the scone and finding out uh, who's responsible for the deaths of the lamplighter and Sonky and the others um, that it's about solving a crime rather than him like so he's just kind of you know 
uh, out of his depth policeman trying to do the right thing, uh, completely physically overmatched by the likes of Wolfgang. Mm. Um, I, I look to like it's sort of you really see how old he is when he's getting, like wheezing as he's running around when mm. when Wolfgang's uh, and and his gang are chasing him or his pack I should say. There's a great moment, uh, just a really good bit of writing where uh, what was it he says. Uh, not only was his body uh, cashing checks, that, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it was, his brain was cashing checks. That no, his brain, it? his body was cashing checks that something like like his back was cashing checks that his arms couldn't handle and his legs and, like his legs were borrowing money from his feet and like the interest was growing or something. Yeah. It's a great way of really emphasising just like that he is pushing himself so insanely hard and it's yeah. just like. Uh, He's at the end of his tether, really. But you know, if, if he was using all, like ultimately, that's it's Sybil who uh, who who sorts out the actual negotiation of the the uh, the fat makes very very a lot of sense from a you know from just a surely plot point of view. She's a lot better at these things, you know. Mm. She kind of knows before. But I think from like just our satisfaction as readers, it would be sort of I don't know like queasy to see Vimes using a lot of the the. Uh, heavy-handed, aggressive tactics he does to enforce Ankh-Morpork diplomacy done to enforce justice. You know what I mean? Mm. We, we can handle him going around saying, like, uh, threatening Captain Tantony and the others when it's about, like, keeping his friends safe and Absolutely. finding out who stole the skull and killed the others. But it was, like, him doing that to make sure that, like... He'd be you a know, tyrant, you, Yeah, you Uber-Valdians get into line and start doing things the Ankh-Morpork yeah. way. He, yeah, he, he, he would be a tyrant, so... I think there's a there's a, a nice divide there where he goes there as a diplomat, but then essentially becomes a copper, and through becoming becoming a copper, is is this like fish out of water underdog where we can kind of like root for him desperately scrambling around. And you know, there's a great moment uh, at one point where uh, when he's talking to the low king, he says, uh, "Well, you know, we have to move with the times," and the low king says, "Ah, yes, but these are Ag Morpork times, not Uberval times." Yeah. Which that resonated with me enormously because of that. First of all, it, it comes back to what you're saying. You know, he can't just come in and say, "You have to move with our times." He can't do mm-hmm. that. Like he kind of has in his head that you know, Ag Morpork times are the times, and that made me think, "Wow, like Ag Morpork in this like scenario kind of works as like America," you know, because um, and again ties in really well with the overall theme of, uh, you know, uh, globalization and the world getting smaller because at this point, the clacks are kind of a proto-internet in this, I feel, because everyone can start, like, talking to each other and there's lots of little hints towards that. Like, um, there's one bit, and this, I feel like, it even uh, predicted, like, what the world was going to be like where nowadays people can't even go into a restaurant without running out to the nearest tower to check their messages and I felt like that was... Talking about you know people who can't stop yeah, looking at their yeah. phone when they're <laughs> like you know in the middle of meals. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like wow, this is so uh, so ahead of its time. But um, yeah, but, but the fact that uh, they say oh yeah, these are uh, the times are like Morpork times, not Uberval times. It's like yeah, that's kind of um, a globalized thing in terms of uh, you know we all move with you know basically where the media comes from. That's what we adapt to. You know, uh, it's the the likes of. Hollywood and things we see on TV, so much of it is Americanized, and that's what's yeah. that's what's labeled as modern, not like you know what is modern by Irish standards or you know by African standards or Russian standards or you know Australian standards. It's yeah. always American standards because that's always seen as the forefront of modernity. Um, just I just thought that was really interesting. They draw, they make a point of it, and they just kind of lead you to stew that over in your head. So which is just well, nice. I think it's it's really there's a footnote about. 
Carrot explaining democracy, like the Ephebian idea of democracy to Vimes, and Vimes not being comfortable with it because it means Nobby would get a vote as well. And even though it's just a throwaway <laughs> footnote, I think it, it does a really good job of like reminding us of the sort of like uh, I suppose the um, historical realities of this world. Like uh, this world is kind of like you can't you can't completely. Uh, sort of a square peg and a round hole trying to fit it into like oh it's like Earth at this time or it's like it's exactly like this city at mm. this time but I say it's roughly equivalent to like late 18th century early 19th century Earth at this point mm. um, maybe even a little earlier and like democracy still this kind of untested idea that isn't universally accepted so that um, when Vimes and the rest of them are going around enforcing the peace justice and the Ankhmore Porkian way it, it reminds us that that's nece- not necessarily going to be a good thing from the reader's point of view, mm. but that we kind of have to accept that, like, well, living in this world, of course they wouldn't just, you know, uh, manufacture um, democracy. And it is, it's uh, it's like a, always a, a pet hate of mine in, in other uh, fantasy books when you have this world that's usually in this sort of semi-medieval, maybe quasi-Renaissance-era fantasy world, um, but people are expressing these really anachronistic ideas of, you know, like uh, 19th, 20th century views of equality and universal suffrage and mm. uh, things I like just that. It wasn't like that. Yeah, was, yeah. Well, and it's like, I mean, whatever. It's the writer's imagination. If they want to make a world where, say, technology levels are at, you know, roughly parallel to like 15th century Earth, but social attitudes are roughly parallel to 20th century Earth then grand do it but like find some way of explaining it rather than presenting yeah. us with this world that is like like middle ages air but with magic and then suddenly having people yeah um, it's just like our, our own world suddenly turned into the 15th century as opposed to this is where it's actually set yeah yeah, yeah. I know um, so like I, I feel it, this never quite does that like I said we, we kind of view like look at people like Cheery and Angu and think well Ang Morpork's way of doing things allows them greater choice of how to live their lives as dwarves and werewolves than, than the traditional uber way but there's still like obviously a lot of problems with the Ankh-Morporkian way of doing things actually though I do think that the uh, the subplot with the C plot I suppose with Colin as funny as it is and I do think it's really really funny it is great um, the one thing I, I, do, I do feel it, it kind of undermines is that it almost makes Ankh-Morpork look, look too perfect for the fact that when the watch collapses like veterinary talks to tell us to drum nod about how oh like there's no one's really taking advantage of it by committing crimes because they know Carrot and Vimes will be back. Um and, and that does kind of give me a giggle of like Carrot and Vimes, his reputations are so legendary now that this would um uh scare them and that the Ankh-Morpork criminal classes do have that streak of very Ankh-Morporkian uh, cynical self-preserving practicality about them but it does make the place seem a little too sort of uh, I suppose too perfect when you're setting up like this culture clash between Ankh-Morpork and Uberwald where we kind of decide a little more on Ankh-Morpork but relate to why Uberwald would see Ankh-Morpork as a threat and don't quite want to move that way to depict Ankh-Morpork as being a place that can like almost get away with a breakdown in his police force yeah. without much crime does mm. make it like I think unintentionally seem like oh yeah Ankh-Morpork's actually pretty great and all the other places should you know would be happy to be like that um, but uh, but uh, I, I think that's kind of inadvertent but unfortunate implication of, of that seat but there's a lot of other kill cool bits where at the start where Vimes like refers to 
they mentioned about Reese Reese and not liking Ankh Hork and he says, Oh, I thought he was one of the good guys and I think it's like Inigo says to him that like you can't just divide the world over the good guys and bad guys and expect that the good guys are the ones who like Ankh Morpork. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's the thing, like uh, Albert Albertson, he or is that his name? Al I think it's Albrecht Albertson. Albrecht Albertson. Like he he comes across as a very detestable character for the majority of the book because the first time we meet him he calls Cheery a name that it, it, it's implied that's absolutely, I think it's Hazach or yeah. something like that, but it's implied that it's a really horrific name that he's called her. But by the end of it, he progresses the plot in a really like uh, positive way, even if it's not necessarily um, you know intentional, just by the fact that he uh, says, oh yes, this is the scone, all right, even though technically it's a fake and he's aware of that, but um, he knows this is the way that we, you know, Dwarves aren't going to fight other dwarves, so like he's not there to start a war. He's doing what he legitimately thinks is the right thing to do, and that's really interesting because it just shows that he is not a black and white, you know, evil character. He's a great character with questionable morals, questionable ideals, but essentially a good person. Yeah, I love that bit when when Reese is talking about him afterwards, and he says, "Oh, in many ways, he's a better man than me," and. Mm. Um, he would have made a great king 300 years ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah right? and that's that's really interesting. It's just the fact that, like, you know, what we what our what our ideals mean now aren't the same as what they were 100 mm -hmm. years ago, and like morality can change with societal norms. You know, the scone can be reforged. Exactly. Yeah. Do you know what else we haven't talked about? And again, it's a, a wonderful metaphor. We talked about how the scone uh, they use the axe metaphor and. Mm -hmm. Another metaphor that they use, but they don't actually make it explicit, is of course the Igors. Yeah, they, you know yeah. they're constantly improving themselves by like adding more. Comfort, <laughs> oh, there's a word that um, at one point he says sausages, and uh, they said the Clatchian Foreign Legion would have paid like a fortune to hear like, Igor say <laughs> sausages. <laughs> but um, but um, the fact that Igor, like you know, they strip like all the. Uh, the bad parts of their body to constantly approve and upgrade mm -hmm. themselves. That's a very modern ideal. And there's that great moment at the very end where they, um, the watch takes on the, the younger Igor, mm -hmm. who is like a really radical Igor because he's essentially engaging in stem cell research. When he's growing noses. And and yeah, it's like, oh my God, this is so... Oh my God. <laughs> and like, it's, it's just... It goes to show you that like uh, Terry Pratchett, he's, he's made a very conscious choice here that he's really focusing on uh, modern values, you know, and he's looking into all the controversial topics and saying, we have to appreciate that all of these things, like if, even if you don't agree with them, some of them have their place in society. Some of them, there are pluses to all of these. But also, uh, there's that point early on when, you know, the dwarven sedan chairs that go yeah, around yeah. more pork and they have like, you know, the deep earth, deep, deep down uh, dwarves inside mm -hmm. and uh, you know Vimes makes the comment that um, oh yeah I'll bet people look at that as like oh it's a good thing that the old ways are being kept alive because they weren't usually around before this election was or the monarchy thing yeah was yeah place. you want someone to keep you always alive even and if, if you're there um, and a bit about like all the dwarves like more work even the ones who never who were born and raised in Park having this dream of someday retiring to a little mine of their own. Do you know, I think it's for, for me and you particularly, I think that must really resonate because like the Irish, the whole Irish diaspora thing, yeah, like it's yeah. very, there's a great parallel between um, 
the dwarves who like you know always sing old songs about going home even though like the ones who are like there complain about like how backwards it is or whatever yeah. and like you know in some ways we're kind of similar like if we like anytime if i don't know if this is a thing for you as well but anytime i go on holiday with a few friends i always find myself talking a little bit in irish just because i know i can <laughs> and other people like don't understand it with never in ireland I never use Irish. Like. I, when I lived in New York, I remember being in like, uh, like, like writing in a frozen yogurt bar deep into the deep into the night, and uh, looking up, and they had like a telly, and it was showing a, a tourism ad for Ireland, and I actually started like peering up, and I thought, <laughs> "Oh wow, this actually works! It yes, really works if, you, if you're on the if you're on the other side of it, you know." <laughs> it's the old country. It's like yeah. I mean, rebel songs, you know. I guarantee, I've, I I the odd time when I'm with my family who are very into that kind of thing like I might but generally speaking I wouldn't be big into the whole rebel songs thing couple but of months you'll be in some bar in Tokyo leaving a bunch of Japanese guaranteed. singing the wild rover I remember uh, a, a few months ago there was a friend of mine she was over from America and like I, I told her like I'll show you around a little bit like and we went into uh, the Brazen Head, which is the oldest bar in oh, Dublin, yeah, yeah. and uh, I taught her how to sing the Fields of Athen Rye, which will just go to. Sh- it's just it's something about you know you know when you're surrounded by your own country and there's no you know outside uh, influence, you're kind of like oh whatever. But as soon as there's like a foreign element in there, suddenly you become patriotic as hell. Patriotic as hell. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. So I, I'm sure we're. Uh, not the only kind of a uh, culture or country that can relate to that that element of the dwarves that like double identity of you know living away and wanting the benefits of I suppose like of modern life but also wanting to ha- wanting to hang on tr- to tradition or at least know that someone's hanging on to it and exactly. it's preserved and yeah like having this dream of someday return like yeah home as a kind of flexible floating symbol mm. that isn't just necessarily where you're living right now it's somewhere deep in the in the folk memory in the in the soul and um it's i find it really interesting uh there's a point where uh Karif is talking about how he's a dwarf yeah. and vimes is very dismissive obviously says, yeah but like you know he's six foot tall or whatever and she's like no that has nothing to do with what a dwarf is you know it's uh he can and she says a bunch of dwarven uh you know traditions or whatever he can pronounce the blah blah, blah or he can perform the or whatever it is but, um, you know, that's, for them, that's what defines a dwarf. And nobody seems to question it, you know? Like, it's never, like, it was it was a bit ironic early on in the earlier books. It was like, oh, yeah, this six-foot-tall guy is, uh, you know, a dwarf. All right, that's kind of funny. Mm-hmm. But now it's become this really, like, serious, interesting, like, issue. It's, uh, wow, okay, this guy really is, like, a dwarf by his, uh, you know, his standards. And um, again, this is something that we can attribute to real life because it's very easy for someone to say, like, uh, and I, I feel like I'm kind of treading on delicate territory here now, but like, it is kind of, a, it can be viewed as a very racist sort of thing. Like, you know, the color of your skin can kind of define where you're from mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. It, it reminds me a bit of that um, Father Ted joke, you know, where uh, I think it's great, the work that the priests are doing, you know, like oh, in the yeah. likes of uh, Africa and Kenya. What do you think? Says, I wouldn't know. I'm from Donegal. <laughs> you know? I should clarify for anyone who hasn't seen Father Dead and who definitely should. Mm. This is like a, a, a sitcom set in a, like a, a tiny kind of island that's like a satire of, of rural Ireland. And in this scene, it's, it's the, I think it's a funeral or something. It's a funeral, yeah. yeah. And, and uh, So there's a load of priests there. 
and uh, the nun is talking to this black priest and saying all this stuff like, oh, the, the work the church is doing in Africa. And then he just turns mm. and speaks in this, like, yeah. Really like, strong accent Dun- yeah. from Donegal. And, like, you know, it's that immediate assumption because he's not white, he must be from a different mm-hmm. country, you know. And it's the same kind of thing here, you know, the assumption that because he's. Well, in this case, it's kind of a rare scenario here. It's like, because he's six feet tall, he's not a dwarf. But it's interesting that, you know, he pokes at that. And he kind of, he, he raises those questions, you know. It's it's funny that it started off as a joke. And even Cheery, even though he was exploring these kind of issues in a much lighter manner in um, Men at Arms. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, sorry, not Men at Arms, in Feet of Clay. Um, at this point, he's really properly probing and exploring these issues in a much more uh, deft manner, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, you know who we haven't mentioned and who's deadly Indigo Skipper. <laughs> oh God, yeah, yeah. He's um mm-hmm. well, I mean, he's cool and all, but uh do you think there's much to him really? Uh I, I don't know, but he's very cool. <laughs> he's a great character and like he's well he's well characterized with his little mm mm-hmm, mm mm-hmm mm-hmm. thing that yeah. he does. Um Yeah, it's um just the part where like what is it, they get attacked and Vime skills one, uh, you know, Bandit and Detroitus kills another, and he kills a five. Yeah. Vimes just leaves him there, he's like, yeah, no, he'll, he'll be fine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Take care of himself. And he keeps, then, whenever he sees him since, he's looking at him and trying to reconcile, like, mm. the way he looks and acts with, uh, you know, how he actually is. And I love his, his death scene as well. And, like, the, that the, is the tension of it when he goes down. That's, a, that's almost like a scary very horror scene yeah. thing. Just uh, for clarity on that, there's a point where Skimmer is in an old clax tower and he hears a knock on the door. And at this point, because he's a trained assassin, which we discover earlier on, uh, he goes to check to see what it is, but he arms himself very well and he can't see anyone down there. He realizes he didn't lock the door. So uh, he arms himself basically to the teeth, goes down and waits in the shadows, waiting for another knock. And then out of the corner of his eye, he sees like the flame uh, from a candle just goes out. And at that moment, he remembers... Oh yeah, you can knock on a door from the inside as well, and then there's just the line: "They were very good, the werewolves." So and it's it's a great scene. It is very good. Um, what I really like, and again, this is serving volumes more than him, but um, he's definitely uh, he's made out to be this really badass, like really capable character who can take on just about anybody. But um, and like he's he's a match for volumes. But there's that wonderful point where Vimes catches him in like the uh, motel or hotel or wherever mm-hmm. they are in the inn, sorry. And um, uh, Skimmer kind of tells him, uh, "Look down, your grace." And Vimes is aware of a knife sticking into his belly. And Vimes says, "Look down further." And Inigo like looks down further. And he didn't. He gulps. Says, "Wow, you really are a dirty fighter." <laughs> no, he says something like, "Yeah, what's that? I thought you were a gentleman." He says, "Yeah, well, you won't be." <laughs> yeah, well, that's what it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But um, yeah, I, I mean, I think he's a cool character, and like, uh, but I just think he's 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 fine. He's fine. There's nothing. I I don't really have any complaints. But he's not something I really focus on that much. Um, see, everyone else kind of feel I like, ties into it in a really interesting way. Like they all thematically fit. Yeah, yeah. I I, I in a weird way, I think he, he's all the cooler because of that because he kind of could be any character. Like he's sort mm-hmm. of exposition for a while where he's this clerk who knows the area and knows like how diplomacy should work a bit better than violence. They have yeah. Violence. Brushing up against them, and to do that, like uh, Pratchett could have just say had a veterinary sent drum that with Vimes, you know. And, yeah, yeah. But instead, he comes up with this new character who's like a combination of sort of like um, yeah, this stiff, uh, humorless clerk and <laughs> absolutely badass assassin. 
Do you know who's very good now? I think he's... Uh, and we, we enjoyed him a lot in... Uh, what do we call it? Uh, feet of clay as well. Is Detritus is yeah, excellent yeah. in this because in many ways he's actually like the voice of reason in mm-hmm. in this one because uh, you know a lot of people seem to have issues with like traditional values or modern values. There's always they kind of lean one way or the other, but uh, Detritus is kind of like so on bang on. He knows exactly what's good and what's bad. You know, there's uh, that wonderful moment. Um, there's two wonderful moments that he has. I think that really kind of sums them up in this book in particular. The first is when they go to the embassy for the first time and Vimes and Sybil see the giant troll head yeah. hanging on the wall and they're trying to hide it and thinking, oh God, Detroit can't see that. He'll be so upset. Blah. And then they're like, oh, sorry about this. And he's like, oh yeah, yeah, there was a lot of that in the old days. And it's just kind of like, so yeah, he just gets that it's better now. He's not really upset about it. He's just mm-hmm. like, that's the way it was. Like he's obviously, he is a bit upset about it because he says something... Um, well, he says he, he says about like his granny giving him a cup that's like a human skull. So he's kind of pointing out that um, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. So he's just like, this is the way it used oh, to be. Oh no, no. There's a uh, someone says who skull, and he goes, do you think anyone asked a troll what his name was? That's what it was. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And like that's a really barbed comment, but he's like he's still like calm about it, so it's fine. But the other great moment was um, towards the very end when he shakes the low king's hand. Yeah. And he's look afterwards. He's just like astonished. He's like, wow, I've never shook hands with a dwarf before. And Cheery's like, you've shook hands with me. He says, you're a watchman. You don't count. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. oh my God, that's amazing. Because like, he's literally like, you know, he's so completely oblivious to like, you know, the likes of race, gender, everything. He's just kind of like, you're just a person. You're doing your job, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, but I, I, I see this more than that. Like, he obviously very much sees the difference in Trolls, Dwarves, and humans. Oh, obviously, like, yeah. Detritus, I mean, we've talked about Boris, the most upwardly mobile character in the entire disc world. He oh, starts easily. He splatter and colour magic and he will end up as like a sergeant. Oh, yeah, I keep forgetting he's in the so, like, magic. Like, like the watch, I think, like means so much to him and it's obviously taught him so much and he's changed as, as a person. So it's not so much that, like, like he doesn't see Cheery as a dwarf, but more that the fact that she's a watchman comes before the fact that she's a dwarf and for him it comes before the fact that he's a troll. And I think you know? what's his name um, from Men at Arms? Cuddy. Uh, Cuddy, yeah. I think like that if that feeds into that really well. The fact that he defends Cheery's, you know, I was going to say honour, which kind of implies a different set of circumstances. Yeah, he that. defends her. Um, he, well, he kind of does. You know, like, he defends her from um, Albert Alberton. And I think that really comes out of his experience with Cuddy in Men at Arms. Like, you can definitely see his CV would be so interesting, you know, <laughs> considering like, oh, look, he had a brief, brief stint in the movies as well, <laughs> back when he was in moving pictures. <laughs> yeah, he's a really, really interesting character that way. Do, do you know the one thing I find odd is that um, when when Veterinary proposes Vimes' retinue for the, uh, for the trip, he says, cheery... Angua and Detritus, because he's just they they're the like main the main uh, um, I suppose like races I was going to say minorities but they're very much the majorities in Uberwald are dwarves trolls werewolves and vampires and obviously the watch don't have a have a vampire but we don't see any tro- other trolls there really we obviously see their trolls head and yeah. it's odd because Vimes makes the observation that because the temperature in Uberwald is much colder Detritus is much sharper there yeah. so you would imagine that if there are trolls they'd be in a decent position to be like their own you know have carved out their own political power in the way that the dwarves or the, the vampires have because they're obviously incredibly strong but they'd be quite you know quite uh, sharp yeah. around, around Uberwald and it, it's I mean it's not 
the thing I is, suppose you could see it as a bit of a missed opportunity, but this book does so much. Anyway, I just found it weird when I thought back that, oh yeah, Veterinary tells them, bring the trolls because there's a lot of trolls there, and then we don't see any other trolls there. Yeah, I do think it is a case that like he didn't feel, because it didn't, there probably was some way you could integrate it in, but the story works so well, he didn't really want to force it in there. But I do think it is something he's aware of, because if I remember rightly, Thud is basically, uh, you know, it's like the troll version of this book in a way. Like, is this, Doesn't he go to Uberwald again? No, they got to Coombe Valley, the, the place That's where the, it, uh, yes. the battle happened. Oh, yeah. yeah Thud it, is like, like, like I suppose, it's, it feels like, like doing men at arms again in light of uh, Fifth Elephant mm. it'll be interesting when we get to it I remember really liking it but it'll be interesting reading them in order whether it feels kind of like the way we felt with Carpe Gaelum where it's like oh this is all very good but why are you doing it after Lord Sunday yeah yeah um, because um, uh, and this probably I, I just want to talk about this although you know it won't really be an issue as, as we rank it because ultimately we were deciding about uh, this book and how it builds on what came before rather than what was coming after because he hadn't written that at the time but like this really feels like like the end of a big chapter in a watch. Doesn't oh, it? huge. Absolutely. He's got to a father. He finally takes a holiday. And Carrot, it ends with Carrot sitting in the commander's chair with Anua. And what, like, the very last line of the book, wolves never look back. He was, yeah. You know, this feels like, okay. You this know, feels like the end. Yeah. Like, you, it you, really you, does. You, maybe you have Nightwatch as like a coda where it brings Vimes full circle. Um, uh, the Night Watch, I feel, is like the Mad Max Fury Road, <laughs> the, the, the trilogy of like or whatever like amount of books. Because like you know, yeah, this feels like finally the end of a wonderful journey. But Night Watch is just kind of like a really fun reboot, literally a reboot, because like it goes back to before yeah. the beginning. You know, it's great. But uh, I suppose it, you know, we, having seen Vimes go from like alcoholic joke of a policeman on this like uh, you know like tiny. Um, watch dealing with these tiny crimes to Duke and Ambassador but kind of out of his depth in those roles to give him seemingly what he wants going back to basics yeah. and then deconstruct all his ideas of how you know how pure and innocent the past was and so like this feels, book feels like closing a chapter in a watch and Night Watch is like the epilogue or the coda mm. and then after that it feels like if we were to have any watch books they'd have to be completely different like Vimes couldn't be the main character anymore you know his it, it, like, it yeah. like like do the equivalent of the way he moved on to Tiffany Aching after closing the book on, yeah. on and Granny I think pops up in some of the Tiffany Aching ones she's definitely in the first one at least yeah yeah but but that like okay well we've told horrors of protagonists it's done and it, it sort of feels like after this and Night Watch that's the end for volumes. And then you've kind of, you've, you'd have Carrot in charge, but you can't really do a book from inside Carrot's head. no. So maybe Anua would be the main character, or they could introduce a new recruit who um, we'd be seeing uh, Anua and Carrot and the rest of them through his or her eyes. Mm. Um, but uh, I just remember thinking, because I had often heard, and, and in, in light of remembering how much I had enjoyed Todd, I'd often heard, like, oh, no, Nightwatch is where, like, they, the watch is the natural conclusion. Um and that, like, like it's the kind of again that like the sense of being an epilogue or a coda yeah. to Fifth Elephant. And I, I had thought like, oh, that, that sounds about right. But I remember Todd being very good. And when I got to the end of this, I thought, wow, yeah, this really does feel like, mm. you know, he's he's uh, going somewhere else here. But um, but you know, I can't, I can't really comment. Not taken. I can't really comment on Thud because it's been a long time since I've read it. Um, I don't remember really thinking I, I remember like most of the Terry Pratchett books to be honest I remember reading it and enjoying it but like it didn't stand out to me in any way but I do remember uh, after that was Raising Steam no Snuff oh Snuff sorry yeah, yeah I remember reading that and that that's one of the very few Discworld books that I felt was a disappointment 
Like I remember reading it and thinking, this is something that we've covered before because it's literally just exploring race, but like it's a new race that we haven't looked at before. It feels like let's let's make another sequel. It's and it's similar enough to the other ones. Like I mean, it also reminded me of um, oh crud, what was it? Um, no, it's sorry, it's gone from my head now. What I was gonna say it reminded me of oh yeah, it reminded me of like a. Uh, if all these books were like big, epic, like Lord of the Ring fantasy things, like that was like an episode of Keeping Up Appearances or like uh, One Foot <laughs> in the Grave, you know, because they literally go to this tiny, almost like British suburb kind of place. Yeah, it, it feels, I suppose, in, in retrospect, like uh, what he done successfully with Masquerade, where after the, you know, the brilliant climax of Lords and Ladies, he was yeah. able to kind of shift priorities like oh now it's Granny and Ankh Park and it's not really about her you know saving the world it's more this character based thing and it kind of feels like he's trying to do something similar with Vimes and yeah, stuff yeah but see like, it doesn't really work yeah yeah it's, but, um, we're, we're talking a lot about stuff I saw on our, on our episode yeah yeah sorry but to go back um, yeah I just I felt I couldn't really comment on Thug but you're definitely right this definitely feels like a very epic climax to everything and it's so great it's almost a shame that Jingo was in there before because it would have been great to have like you know guards guards is like something in the city men at arms in the city Phil Clay it's in the city and it's all trying to figure out these mm-hmm. things and then finally for the last elephant we'll take you out of your element and like wow that's an epic conclusion Jingo actually feels like more and more like a misstep like the further we get into this yeah so, as you said a lot of those kind of arcs of like you know where Rangu is going and where Garrett's gone is sort of like you can draw a line from like Guards, guards, true to Fifth Elephant. If you jump over Jingo, it seems to sort of sidestep a lot of the, yeah, it's uh, very the ongoing, the ongoing uh, conflicts and, and uh, decisions those characters have to make. Do you know, we haven't talked about the fact that Vines is a blackboard monitor either. <laughs> so yeah, him as a blackboard monitor. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, um, actually, no, that, even that like a little throwaway thing like that, actually feeds into the themes as well because uh, what was it Reese Reeson says to him it's like oh yes you're the eraser of teachings and absorbs yeah, uh, what's value in the, the written words you have that scene when he goes into the uh, the he meets Reese Reeson and he's in a room full of books and mm-hmm. shelves on shelves on shelves and Reese Reeson says that they're like um, records of every decision uh, every kind of like legal decision ever made in uh, the Dwarf Kingdoms and he vibes is where they good and he says well the important thing is they're made and the yeah. idea of someone being able to rub out words being this uh, uh, very very valued position in, like in the Dwarves eyes tells us a lot about Dwarven culture yeah it's, it's a very modern notion that like you know we can you know it, if you think about it like the way it's uh, I, I, it's a little thing but I just found it interesting that you know yeah we have to rub out like the old teachings because we've learned from them so we can write something new to learn something new, you know. So the blackboard monitor kind of facilitates change and education and modernity. It's like you know, it's a t- it's a yeah, throwaway yeah. joke, but it's still there. That is like wow, that it's actually out the words, but it's always the same blackboard. It's like the uh, Scanner Stone. Yeah, see, it's like there's loads of little things like this that just make it um, really, really good. I still think the Igor though, with him growing the the noses and everything, is great. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think. Uh, what else is there? What do you think of Lady Margolotta actually as a character in it? Um, I, I I liked her, uh, and I I kind of felt I I wondered I was trying to remember how I felt with her on first read. I kind of almost wished this had been the first time reading it, because obviously it feels as if you are supposed to to some extent share some of Vimes' suspicions about her. Like if not like we're very aware that Vimes has his prejudice against vampires. I think, but it also mm-hmm. feels like we're being set up where 
okay, there's the dwarves, the werewolves, and the vampires, and, like, there's all this suspicion and intrigue going on, and some or all of them are up to no good, and kind of, you know, there's almost this, like, who done, not only who done it, but who done it, what, what's been done, kind yeah. of, moment, like, we know there's going to be a villain out of these, um, maybe more than one, and, like, I remember going in, I remember that D and, uh, was the villain, and I remember, obviously, like, Wolfgang, I mean, Wolfgang, you know, from the start, is yeah, a bad yeah. egg, but, um, yeah, it would have been interesting had I not read this before and not, or not remembered any of it even. Would would it have seemed like, oh, just, you know, it's like cutesy, umbrage-esque uh, vampire yeah. is, is, you I know, think what's her angle? They definitely, he, uh, I think Terry Pratchett really takes advantage of stereotypical narrative tropes here because if you put in that situation, it's very, very obvious, like, the first thing that comes into your mind is like, oh, well... Two of the groups are being bastards to him, but one of them is being really nice. I bet you they're the bad guy. And it's actually really interesting that he doesn't do that. It's like, wow, the one who treats him with respect, not necessarily, again, not necessarily a good person, but um, she's kind of an enabler for modern values and, in a way, sort of good. Yeah, well, I, I, I like the way, too. I think it's, we see, she obviously... Um, it's, it's, it's kind of implied, as I wrote said, but the veterinary, she was veterinary's pupil. Because Vimes makes some remark about, like, oh, I bet you taught him everything he knows. And and she says, you think I taught him? And and my, what I got from that was that she's, like, saying he taught mm-hmm. me. Um, but that veterinary is usually on uh, the watch's side to an extent. And what he does clash a bit with Vimes, it, it, it tends to work out. And here we see someone who uses his tactics... But from the outside, and how I suppose how morally specious um, and frankly kind of almost callous they can seem, like the idea that it was horror that flew Wolfgang back up mm. and dropped him back in the middle of the town, where he could have killed Civil or Cheery or, or Vimes or anyone in the uh, embassy. And her attitude is, well, like you know, he's always going to cause trouble, and it's good to get him out of the way now. So I'll drop him back in, and mm. you guys can finish him off. It's a very cold, calculating look at us. Yeah, yeah. I mean, actually, when Vimes goes out of the embassy, sure, like, he he basically finds Wolfgang by following the trail of destruction. Like, he sees, oh, there was a horse with, like, a load of entrails. Yeah, got entrails torn out. So, yeah, who knows if, like, a couple of people died there and many Mm. more could have because she just thought, oh, this will be a handy, you know, a handy uh, time to... Yeah, it is one of those... To finish him off. And, like, the thing is... Not only that, sorry, to get Vimes and... Yeah, and you and the rest of them finish them off rather than doing it herself then. It is, it has like a really like desensitized logic to it. Like, yeah, I mean, yeah, she did put him into civilization where he can cause more damage. But in the long run, you have to think, oh, well, if he's going off in the other direction and it takes a long time to recover, he could cause untold damage like for a much longer time. So by bringing him back, it's like, okay, yeah, we're going to have a little bit of carnage now, but you'll sort it out. It's it's a bizarre... Yeah. Like, again, it's a kind of a grey area because it's very easy to kind of point and say, how could you? That's a terrible, monstrous thing to do. But in the long run, it's kind of like, well, no, there's actually... It makes kind of sense. She's like the Thanos of this universe. No, it's, it's like uh, Ozyman Dias at the end of Watchmen. Yeah. When, you know, he, he causes... You, you know, have you read it? Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, spoil it for you, but Yeah, he causes great destruction with his idea that this will lead on to world peace and mm. he's proven right. Yeah. Uh, but I suppose the kind of like the the uh, moral quandary comes from the fact that he could never know he was going to be proven right, you know. And neither could yeah. she. Like she could have left uh, 
Wolfgang back there and he just goes in and kills everyone in the embassy yeah. and then goes off and it's just causing more trouble, you know. So Do you know I found myself thinking, um, you know, when uh Vines or not Vines, sorry, when Veterinary is thinking of Lady Margalotta and he gets kind of distant. Did you feel that there was might be an implication that there's a romantic uh, yeah, relationship there? Yeah, I thought so. I think I mean now it's it's or her- at the very least the kind of like Sherlock Holmes or Irene Adler thing where it's yeah. like uh an un them, an unacted upon romance that like is sort of burning in the air, mm. built upon kind of shared intellect and respect and chemistry and so on. That that at the very least, but yeah. I wouldn't be surprised if it was a bit more. It's funny to think that like the only person you could really think of veterinary like being with would have to be someone like who happens to be like a vampire or mm. something like that. It would have to be because you just you couldn't see him with like you know some Mary Sue from Ang Morpork like <laughs> it just wouldn't work that way. I'm sure there's been a lot of fan fiction certain where uh, <laughs> where that happens. Absolutely. Um well, I'm trying to think what other little things like uh oh yeah it's it's a neat little thing that uh Leonard invents uh the espresso machine yeah as well like another little step forward in terms of modernity <laughs> um but it's he not, like, the enigma machine the what this is code breaking thing he give like the really long name oh, he gives yeah. it the, uh, it acronymizes to enigma yeah. which is of course the uh, thing Alan Turing invented during um, World War Two oh it's fantastic um, Here, here's a question for you right yeah. Should Anua have killed Wolfgang? I... It's a tricky thing. Um, you see, the thing is, we're more invested in Vimes. Like, I mean, this might just be the way the book is written, but, like, I mean, we've always been more invested in Vimes, and I think the payoff for him to, like, kill him, but to be able to withhold his bloodlust while he's doing it... Like, to do it just as a thing to be done as opposed to, like, revenge. I don't think that's something Angua could have done. So if she killed him, I think it would have sent her down a very dark path. Yeah, I I don't know. I think, like, I sort of feel as, as good as that moment of Vimes killing him and restraining himself from turning it into a kind of, a, you know, action hero moment... Like I know, I think if we didn't have that, you know, we wouldn't come out of this book feeling like unsatisfied for what Vines has gotten. Like he's kind of surviving the chase and restraining himself when his head is telling him kill him all about the werewolves. We get elements of, of that there, um, and it's just that like it's really, if you really feel set up that way, where uh, where Angel keeps talking about Wolfgang is she's the only one Wolfgang's afraid of, um, and you know she's got to uh, go back and sort of basically finally resolve things with her family i mean we've had mm. this uh, like uh planted for seeds excuse me seeds planted for a while like i think it's the boogeyman in um feet of clay mentions about the baron asking after her. And we never really get her interacting with her family she shows she threatens her mother about the scone of stone and that's about it and then she fights wolfgang in the embassy and she seems to be winning and then he runs off and she doesn't chase him she's just like mm. you know then, then but uh, I I don't know. It was one of those things. Like uh, as I was reading every moment of it, I I loved it. And it was uh, he was the back of his waist or his blogs up and kind of bounced my own thoughts up. He, he like he this was certainly a big sticking point for him. And I don't think it was quite as much for me because I loved all those bits with with Vimes. Mm. But I I sort of I couldn't fault his logic where it, it really seems like we're being set up for, you know, uh, Angua finally laying her ghost to rest in Uberval so she can go back and make her life in Angmorfork, which she does to a certain extent. I mean, she certainly, as you said, really movingly and satisfyingly resolves her relationship tensions with Carrot. But it's sort of odd that she doesn't get a, 
a, um, a, a big signature confrontation mm. with one of her family members in this. You know, she she shouts at her mom a bit, but uh, you know, it isn't like yeah, you know, it isn't kind of one of the most memorable parts. And admittedly, in a book that's full of very yeah. memorable parts. I have to admit, considering like what a central, like important part of the plot uh, Angua is, she doesn't get as satisfying a payoff as everybody else does. It's like, I mean, let's be fair. I mean, you've got this quartet of characters. You have Angua, Carrot, Civil, and Vines, and they're all very well served. Mm-hmm. But yeah, of all of them, Angua certainly seems to be the weak link. Not necessarily, you know, it's not. We're not saying that like it's bad or anything. But if if any of them is underserved, it certainly is Angua. Yeah, it felt to me a little like uh, in Jingo, where she's a big part of the plot at the start, and then when. Uh, and then, like you know, Ahmed captures her, and then when she gets freed, she's just hanging around. And mm-hmm. and like I, I remember thinking at the time, I was like, oh, this is really a sign of that Jingo is this weird sidestep in her direction and the direction of the watch in general. But we sort of get it here when like that um, she goes, and this is a spore for character together, and that's like that's very much the B plot where you know flitting between Vimes. And that and the, the kind of light-hearted uh, stuff with Colin and Nobby. Uh, and then once she finds Carrot, you get one or two scenes with, um, you know, with Hor and Carrot and Gavin and Gaspode. And then they're gone for ages before uh, before they show up and rescue Vimes from mm. uh, from the hunt. And it felt like a little imbalance to me. Like like it sort of felt like I'm I'm sure he didn't plan it that way. You know, when he began writing those things, like he didn't he didn't think like oh yeah like. What I mean is, like, it almost it, it feels not completely, but it feels for a while as if Carrot and Angus' role is just kind of in service of like, oh, I need someone to show up and, and rescue Vines. Now, obviously, you get a lot more mm. than that with them, but but it ends up feeling sort of that way for a little while. Yeah, no, in, I did. In, in a way yeah, that, like, yeah. I'm, I'm sure wasn't the intent from the start. Like, the idea of getting Angus out of Ankh-Morpork and having Carrot chase her wasn't. I need them to go to Uberval to yeah. meet up with Vines. It was more. I need Angua to go back to Uberval so she can finally resolve this, uh, you know, conflict in herself between the, you know, Uberval and Ankh-Morpork. Yeah, they're not, they're not particularly, like, narratively well served, but in terms of introspection, there's a lot going on for them. I think that's their key thing for, throughout the whole thing. Yeah. It's all about figuring themselves out as opposed to really doing anything with the plot. I mean, the biggest uh, kind of action, I, I feel, is when Carrot goes after uh, Wolfgang and loses. I feel like that's the biggest thing that happened. Well, you could say that he, um, when he takes on the leader of the wolves at, towards the end, you know, after Gavin has died, yeah. and they're surrounded by wolves who want to attack Angua because she's... That's actually a really interesting thing as well. The fact that... Um, the werewolves. The werewolves, werewolves hate, hate Angua. Yeah, werewolves, and, you know, wolves hate werewolves. Yeah, and like, nobody... Everyone's... A carol, carrot and vines are really surprised when they hear that. I, th- I thought she'd get on great with wolves because she's a werewolf. This is why. Humans don't get on with her because she's a werewolf. So it's like, oh, yeah... And, uh, he, like, this again, I just really think it's really, uh, like, he's he's really n- knowing, like, Terry Price and the stuff that he writes about, um, just in the way that we perceive people. Like, there's that other great bit, um, where Angie was talking about her other brothers and sisters, who were both, uh, Yenorts, yeah. which uh, is, like, a werewolf that doesn't transform. So her brother, I think, was, uh, like, basically a wolf all the time. And her sister was like a girl all the time, and Carrot makes that classic mistake where he's just think, oh, so you had a human sister and a wolf brother. He says no, they're both werewolves. Yeah. yeah. And funny when I read that, like my 
where my mind went immediately was um, someone was telling me about um, how bisexuality is perceived in the LGBTQ LGBTQ I always forget the you know the gay community was uh, the not straight people the not yeah but um, apparently um, a lot of people they see like if you're bisexual and you have like say they say you're uh, a guy you're bisexual and you have a boyfriend say oh well basically you're gay then so no no I'm bisexual. So, oh, or if you're like bi and you're going out with a girl, okay, so now you're straight. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think that's that perception is just limited to the LGBTQ uh, um, uh, community. Uh, that, yeah, like a lot of straight people have that misconception as well. Of like, you see a bisexual and they're let's say like it's a man going out with another man for a while. They're and basically they break gay. up and he ends up with a girl. And it's like ah, he was just confused or something. Yeah, you know, like yeah. That. There's like a lot of that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So that that again that uh, desire to categorize yeah. them as like werewolf them or dwarf them based on really narrow easily identifiable uh, features sort of creeps into everyone from, from mm. carrot down to, to vimes through the dwarven society and the rest of it I did think there was a, 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 a when Angular remarks about uh, Wolfgang killing their sister I, I thought like the scenes with Wolfgang and his parents would be much more loaded where they're sort of living in fear of this monster that they've raised mm. and it's repeatedly said about how he's much more extreme than the their the father was um but it's not really there and and her mother then is kind of just deluded snob so but i thought then at least we get some reference to like even subtly like you know what what sort of like mental gymnastics the mother has had to do to be okay with living with the son that killed her daughter you yeah. know what I mean like like either either her and the Baron are just terrified of Wolfgang because he's uh, you know he's like werewolf Rutger Hauer Nazi um, or <laughs> like or uh, the Baron is so you know he's so kind of more wolf like than the human this very understood and the, the Baroness is has somehow convinced herself that, like, oh, Elsa was... Is it Elsa? Elsa? I, I think it's Elsa, yeah. Yeah, um, he didn't he didn't kill her. He just drove her off to whatever, the lands of snow, where she <laughs> yeah, yeah. found a new sister. Um, but, uh, you know, that she'd be thinking, oh, well, she was weak, and, you know, Wolfgang's pure. But we don't really get them talking about it or thinking about it. No, and no, that, that really. felt a little odd to me, because it, it is, like, when that was introduced, the idea of, like, he killed her sister, I was like, whoa, that's, you know... Wow, that's very extreme. Yeah, it's another one of those cases where, like, you kind of, in your head, you want it to be better, but I have to admit there's some holes in, like, the way he's portrayed. Like, uh, I think, yeah, Angua says at one point, uh, oh, the mother just lives in fear of Wolfgang. But the first time you see him, when, like, he's doing naked handstands or whatever, yeah. and she's talking to him, she just she just sounds, like, really fed up of him. She doesn't seem scared of him at all. Like, there's very little of that, yeah. you know? So it's, uh, it's an odd sort of dynamic that's just... Uh, it's 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 um it's one of the minor flaws of it, but now that said, like it's as I said, it's still great. You know, it's uh, done so well mm-hmm. up to that point. Um, what I was going I was going to ask you about. Uh, I want kind of want to go back to the idea of the clacks and uh, the the internet and how that's a whole thing. It's it's funny because this this book it was uh, written when was it written? I think it was like ninety eight, ninety nine, maybe. Yeah, so at this point, uh, like, the internet is kind of, like, uh, now, I, going back to 99, I think, like, at this point, we had a PC, and I think we, once a month we were allowed to go onto the internet to look at, like, the Beano website or something strange, strange like that, you know, it was, yeah. it was that kind of stage now, um, 
So I feel like at this point the internet might still have been kind of um, a craze or like, you know, people weren't really certain is this something that's going to be around forever or is it a fad, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure the Space Jam website went up around this point. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, it, it's interesting because there's a, there's a wonderful moment where uh, it, it's when Vimes is thinking about the clacks in the coach and when he says that moment where uh, all people have to run out and uh, check their messages. And um, he has a very interesting comment where suddenly everyone needs to hear the news. And I thought, that's interesting, actually, yeah. because, yeah, in some ways, people are, with the internet, people are more informed and they do like kind of seek out news stories in a way that they wouldn't have done before. Like, you don't get people constantly reading articles, furiously digesting news. But see, it's done differently here. It's done, like, in a really... Like, in the internet, in the internet now, like, people kind of view news stories in a really bite-sized way because their intention span seems to be, like, you know, going down more and more. And, of course, this has brought about fake news, which means that we, like, loads of people, they read things completely trustingly, assuming that's true, yeah, without I, really verifying the source we'll or anything like that. put a pin in that because I want to come back to it mm. when we get to discuss the truth next time because there's this real... Like that fake news is built on, I suppose a lot of it's built on the idea of like once it has the form of the truth, like oh, this looks like a proper news yeah, website, yeah, yeah, and, and is written in the tone of a journalistic article, people uh, believe it, and that's obviously comes up with a, uh, you know, when the word is sort of marveling over the, the fellows who who live in the boarding house with him, you know, just mm. implicitly believe it because it's written down. Uh, Vines is a great comment about like. We can all talk to each other now. I wonder if we have anything worth saying. Yeah, he, he um, calls it telepathy without brains. Which, uh, <laughs> and it's, it's, it's amazing because I feel like that's, that's a really uh, standard kind of comment to make about the internet now. But back in like 1999, yeah. it's like, wow, I don't think this is what people were doing at this point. So it's really, really like uh, intuitive of them to really like, pick up on this so early on it's it's very um so like marshall McLuhan sort of the me the medium being the message and that like the way the medium we have to communicate are going to influence then how mm. and what we communicate so like that's that's very much the case here so it's like i think like it's obviously a, a much older idea across the board than just the internet but the fact that he does it so well here means it can resound uh in 2018 with communication developments that he couldn't possibly have foreseen mm. and it's still uh, um, it's still kind of resounding with us for all that like you know what's very impressive actually sorry not, not yeah. just very quickly to say um, uh, Terry Pratchett managed to build very quickly on how integrated into everyday life the clacks are considering like I didn't realise when the clacks came into this mm-hmm. world and the fact that he builds on like it's introduced very early on and about halfway through the book, you're just kind of like, yep, so the clacks are part of this world now, that's fine. And it's really emphasised more than any other part when they go to the broken down clacks tower. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's interesting because at that point, I feel like it shouldn't feel this way, but you really feel like, wow, Vimes really is isolated in Uberwald now because he can't get messages back to this world. I'm like, yeah, but a book ago, he wouldn't have been able to do that anyway. So, you know, it's just... Yeah, exactly. They, they become this, this symbol of civilization. And when he's on the run from Wolfgang and he sees a clax tower about a mile away, and he's like, like, once I can reach that, that's, you know, you're within, you're within the contact at Moorpark. I think it's really interesting, too, when he's musing about, like, what happens when towers get ruined. And it, it's like they're privately run, so the company send in people, basically the rough people up. Mm. And it, it reminded me a lot of, like, early... 
like a lot of early colonialism, like say the colonization of India by um by by Britain wasn't initially driven by the British state. It was like by a lot of companies going over there and just being like, you know, oh, we really need these spices. I'm again, I'm very simplifying this, and just you know, kind of uh, taking the law into their own hands in in these places that would have been the you know the ruled by Indian princes at the time. And then the British state backing them up. And this kind of feels like it's happening here where like the clacks are this private enterprise, but they benefit the Ankh-Morpork Pork State so much and maybe mm-hmm. a, a few others around the, uh, like around the uh, Stowe Plains that they will then back them up. And it's, it's sort of like that. It's like all those like all those banana companies going into South and Central America and, you know, kind of massacring people and setting up plantations and yeah. the, uh, the colonizing power saying like, well, yeah, this, you know, this suits what we're doing. So more of this, please. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, that sense of like uh, modernization and colonization being this like multi-armed thing where it isn't just there was this like one genius like Leonard who came up with all these inventions or there was this one country who, you know, like uh, suddenly kind of start invading others or opening up trade with others and just change everything. It's it's all these different, ste- you know, steps happening in succession that kind of add up to this, mm. this greater thing. There's even that great moment where... Um they're investigating Sonky's murder and I think Red Shoe uh, is saying like is there any can you think of anyone who might have had an enemy or made an enemy of Sonky and say well uh, they had a couple of competitors who were like trying new things with like uh, the Sonkies the condoms and like that would have made him like you know and like Sonky refused to do that uh, so they were losing sales because that he just says it in passing but I found that really interesting because like um, you know the whole theme that we're having of like building upon uh tradition adding modern values to while retaining tradition this is showing that even like modern things are constantly evolving and you know yeah. and, and also have a sense of tradition like he's a sonk he's an innovator you know yeah he's this is a brand the inventor, new the condom yeah uh, <laughs> and a lot of more traditional people like carrot and, and colon later see this as a break with you know whatever their traditional values but for him within this Thing they would regard as an aberration or an innovation. Yeah, he's got he has this sense of He's tradition. got traditional yeah. values. I think I can't remember what it is. I think they said they want to do flavored condoms or something. <laughs> he's like, no, that's an abomination. <laughs> but um, the other thing, the other thing I was going to say about that is it's interesting how do you know how they always say um, technology like it's it doesn't like gradually like increase or like you know mod, uh, modernity like it's all mm-hmm. very suddenly like you think of like modern life for us like so much has happened like everything is speeding up and still speeding up like more as more technological advances have happened in the last like 10 years than like possibly the previous thousand years you know it's a crazy amount of things have happened and this book kind of emphasizes that because it's not just the clacks there's loads of little like things dotted around they have the traffic cameras at the start yeah with the the, the mini mini imps and uh i think even uh and there's loads of stuff that just like is kind of throwaway stuff that like it's peppered around the, uh, the spy camera that's the, the nano in. and the uh, Igors have organ donor cards yeah which is another great thing and it's like oh yeah so like uh, they show that yeah we're willing to give away all these like there's loads of little bits like that just dotted around and it's just it's it's all it's all fed into the, the theme is fed into the book really really expertly I mm-hmm. think so yeah uh, I almost see them being built on later with the truth and with the, the moist on liquid ones like so it really sets up this new direction for the the disc world like it's it's this one has made me so excited to yeah to, to read the next yeah one. no it really has actually and the thing is i because i do remember following on from this i remember thinking oh yeah it's around the point where they get all modern and like they got the clax towers that's where i started kind of 
wane a little bit because to be fair there are like so many great mm-hmm. books before this and there's probably less after this point but um yeah no this book has made me really excited to get into some of that stuff um likes of the truth and teeth of time and all that um yeah, I feel like uh, wow. How long have we been talking? We, I, I feel like we're gonna have to cut this short yeah, because we yeah. could talk about this for hours. Well, we're gonna have to, we're gonna have to cut it a, a little short because we got um, we got a lot of the bevy of uh, Twitter questions. From oh, your, cool. Okay, your yeah. Panel, uh, Lay them on your me. Pal, your namesake, New Year Steve. Um, about this. Uh, okay, so he says, uh, "Where do you get your pure fat?" Sorry, I put the wrong answers there. Where do you get your pure fat? Um, these things called Big Al's chicken fillets. <laughs> um, uh, I've got enough to go around. I don't really need to go uh, trimming it from anyone else. Uh, but the noggin grill and Sally Noggin will supposedly deep fry and batter anything for you. Oh yeah, If I had need for pure fat, I suppose I just bring. A sofa into the noggin grill or something. No, civil is what you're looking for to negotiate the fact fact (laughs) arrangements. He says. He also says, "Am I the only one who thought that the title and back cover description for the book were a bit misleading?" He is the um, the American back cover. Uh, He says, "If one only read the title and covers this book, one might come to the conclusion that the elephant would actually have something to do with the plot, rather than merely being." mentioned in terms of cultural context to the Ubervaldian region and he's included a, a picture here the back of his book uh, which says sorry when Judy calls Commander Vimes of the Ankh-Morpork Constab- Constabulary answers even when he doesn't want to he's been invited to attend a royal function as both detective and diplomat the one role he relishes the other requires well ruby tights of course where cops even those clad in tights go alas crime follows an attempt at assassination and a theft soon lead to a desperate chase from the low halls of Discworld royalty to the legendary fat mines of Uberwald, where a lard is found in underground seams along with tusks and teeth and other precious ivory artifacts. It's up to the dauntless limes, bothered as usual by a familiar cast of Discworld inhabitants, you know, trolls, dwarves, werewolves, vampires and such, to solve the puzzle of the missing pachyderm, which of course he does, after all, solving mysteries is his job. So yeah, that really it does, and I the thing is, I get where it's coming from because I remember like I have the Josh Kirby cover, and like when you look at that, the front cover of that is just a giant elephant coming out of the sky. Yeah, I, I remember thinking before I had read this one like years ago that uh, it was another sort of apocalyptic one, like yeah, you know, like like it, uh, Life Fantastic or something where you'd have this elephant crashing into this world like mm. a meteor and someone had to stop it um, yeah and and like that that's a very exciting but it is misleading the thing is though I finally get it like what like only when I was reading it this time around like there's that description um, what was it when Vines is going through all the documents and apparently in Dwarvish to say the fifth elephant doesn't just mean like the myth of the fifth elephant it can also mean an unseen element that controls events so like that is the scone that is an unseen element that's controlling events because yeah. like nobody knows it's missing and nobody realizes that like it's not the thing that they think it is, you know. And it's not just. I feel like you could apply the idea of the fifth elephant to a lot of things, like religion, like uh, you know, like the dwarvish have this notion of what it is to be dwarvish, and everyone has a different idea of it. So it's not really a tangible thing. It's mm-hmm. just something that you know, you know, in your bones. And it's, again, it's kind of the same with diplomacy, you know, with uh, the way Vines is talking to all these people. You know, he, everybody knows that everyone has an agenda, 
but they're not talking about it. They're being diplomatic. So yeah. I, oh, as a metaphor, it's it's excellent. When you know, but uh, I think that's right. Like I, I do remember thinking, and yeah, and, I, and that description on the back of the book where it actually says he's gonna find the missing miss, uh, fifth elephant. I'm assuming they're just talking about the scone there. Like well, pachyderm is is like elephant. Yeah, elephant. you know, I know, but like I I feel like they're just saying they're saying the fifth element is the scone. You know, because it's the unseen element. Maybe, but uh, New Year's Eve is presumably American because this is the the back of the American copy, and I must say I have the world of respect for any of our American the listeners who have to put up with the like god awful covers on the mm. American uh, the, the Discworld books like the, the one here I'll show you the one now of the um, the, the fifth elephant it's maybe I don't know maybe kind of it, it has uh, the uh, I think have, I've seen it it's where they just take like one tiny part of the Josh Kirby ones isn't it like and they just emphasize that element instead um, of the entire no, well thing. it's not even uh, it's, it's not even like from Josh Kirby artwork but maybe it has sentimental value for uh, for for American readers I can understand that but kind of from from an outsider like point of view decision on the aesthetics oh uh, yeah that's that, that that looks like something you'd make in Microsoft Paint yeah you know yeah. it's not great at all I, uh, I think they're uh, so I I really respect all the American Discworld readers who saw those in shops and they went, didn't judge it by yeah, its cover yeah, <laughs> second look and they thought god that looks awful but you know I'd encourage now, maybe they've been encouraged by a friend or something and they thought okay I'll give pressure to read anyway I would encourage play. any of our readers I mean or, or listeners I mean I'm surely if you've been listening to our podcast you've probably seen like the covers that Colin's been putting up but you should have a look at the Josh Kirby uh, you know art covers up until I think it's about Monsters Regiment when he stops isn't it or um, somewhere around there uh, what's the or, one before Nightwatch? Uh, Thief of Time, is it? Yeah, I think Thief of Time is the last one. Yeah, and like everything up to... I mean, the other ones are okay, but like uh, everything before that is just... It is yeah. genuine work of art, like it's yeah, so great. Yeah, I, I love them. He doesn't even... Um, yeah, I mean, he doesn't draw a lot of the characters like I expect them to look like. Um, yeah. But, but there's something about like the kind of wildness and insouciance and kind of bodiness of his artwork... That just conveys the it spirit can, of yeah, this world. So absolutely, well. yeah. Um, like if I were to rank them, I'd put like those covers of his early ones as the uh, like the, the paperback corgi with the Josh Garvey's top. The new posh double day editions. So I, I I got my one the fifth elephant here, and mm. um, they'd probably be second. I think they're like really. I think it's very hard to judge like a fancy uh, hardback against the like paperback one yeah. though. I mean, well, the hardback will nearly always win in my opinion. Well, I know. I, I think those Kirby ones I elevate them. They've got more character invention, yeah. yeah. And toward be the, the newer Paul Kidby ones, the ones you even thought that was great. I I must say I think Paul Kidby. Is in many ways like a much better Discworld uh, illustrator than Josh Kirby. Like he draws the characters much more like I imagined them to look like. Yeah, but I feel but like he but get the uh, Kirby gets like the, as you said the spirit of it across yeah, much yeah. better. Like I I I have Paul Kidby's The Art of the Discworld, and if there was a similar mm. Josh Kirby book, I'd probably like value Kidby's much better as um you know oh this is what the, work the characters art, yeah. look like yeah. But something about Kirby's make for much better covers. Yeah. And then behind them, I put those new kind of adult minimalist covers for oh. people who are embarrassed to be reading Discworld. They've done the same for Harry Potter, where it's like a plain black. It's usually black, and they'll have one minimalist yeah, element, like in soft lighting. Like I, I've got a Witches of Broad on audiobook, and that's the cover. And it's like a wand kind of lying on a table. Yeah. Um, and and I, I dislike them just sure for the purely for the idea of. Oh, we're trying to market these for people who are. It's like, also lazy. I yeah, think. kind of embarrassed with it. I, I do think there is an elegance about some of them. Like, Certainly, it, it, they, yeah, like, but I think they choose decent elements to put to the forefront. Uh, 
which again those those American governors I think are like the worst they look like it said something from Microsoft Paint and it feels really arbitrary it just feels like okay fifth elephant we'll throw an elephant on the cover you know whereas the uh, the yeah those posh minimalist ones and the, the so called adult ones while I I don't like the thinking behind them I do think like they at least look like someone read the book and decided like okay what's the one we're, we know our kind of remit for the cover design is to put like one element of this book in black and white against the, you know mm. against the black background and I've, I've, I've seen carefully about what it was I've seen the one from Witches Abroad one and it is good I like that one like yeah yeah. Um, can I say, bring one more point to the forefront just when we're talking about mm-hmm. modernity just uh, you know what was another really cool thing is that even death himself shows up and he's taking on modern values because he's taking the uncertainty principle into account yeah. when he's uh, trying to figure out if whether Vimes is going to die or not which is great because it adds an element of tension to the whole thing but it's also just a really fun kind of wow even death getting in on the whole modern values thing like this first encounter between death and vimes as yeah as it, yeah because yeah. like I mean Rincewind has done it and like uh, Granny Weatherwax yeah. they got those the, the iconic ones so it's great to see that like uh, oh and of course the wizards have but yeah this is the first time we see vimes talking to him so I'm like interesting cool it's, it's weird because they don't really have any way to interact like you know the wizards you kind of understand because they're on kind of the same wavelength and anyone who's dealt with magic fine but for Vines, he's just like, he's a yeah. copper. He doesn't, like, he deals with life and death, not like the ethereal other realms and shit. So, like, he doesn't really know how to deal with it. So, mm-hmm. it's, it's good, yeah. Yeah, so he asks if you were an Igor, who would you want to get your organs? Presumably the obvious answer is Igor. Uh, John Cena, I think. Just, oh. you know, purely because, I'm, I'm assuming this is like, forcefully giving someone my organs yeah. as opposed to like someone who needs them so like John Cena just wakes up one day and is like oh shit my legs suck now <laughs> well they're constantly trying to find ways to make John Cena seem like an underdog so I suppose you know even though he's this kind of uh, 16 time world champion and has a Adonis of a body so I suppose making him compete with the legs of uh, with your legs extremely average human being yeah. I think yeah I think that I think that would work um, that would make wrestling more interesting to me yeah <laughs> a hell of a handicap yeah. <laughs> um, yeah I don't know I suppose uh, I, I'd be very tempted by the idea to fuck with people by forcing my organs on them but <laughs> I, I get to read this question as like being an organ donor I don't you know, I want my uh, kidney to go to people who need kidneys I'd like if someone actually like got my organs but just like to have rather than, like, to actually use <laughs> someone who is into that sort Decorate of thing. Their house, you know, because I don't think they, anyone who wants organs just to have, they, nobody gives them organs because they think they're weird. So, <laughs> I'd be looking forward for the underdog as that's, well. That's very nice of you. Yeah. <laughs> we also have vampires or werewolves. Who'd you prefer to have in your town? Both is also an option. I, I think I'd prefer werewolves, if only because the, the vampire mind control thing that the magpires use... I think like werewolves mm. are obviously very formidable, but if you at least had possession of your faculties, you'd load up on silver and fire and find some way to to fight them off, you know, rather than becoming a yeah slave. Uh, I don't know. Um, I I mm, I guess probably the vampires because if I'm really in two minds about it, that would mean that I'm uh, not easy to control, which means oh wait, but that now that I'm sure about it, <laughs> I probably would be. Easy to, Damn it, okay. But now that I'm unsure again... <laughs> you have to maintain a constant state of quantum uncertainty. I basically would go for the vampires but constantly think the werewolves would be a better option to have and then I'd be fine, I think. Yeah, I'm pretty uncertain. <laughs> Damn! <laughs> I, I don't know. 
Um, so yeah, vampires. No. <laughs> uh, and lastly, he asks, "Would you win the game of the hunt?" Definitely and, not. Yeah, the no, answer for no. me there is a resounding no. Absolutely so. not. I can barely run water out of the tap. So <laughs> there's no way I could run like in snow. I just no. And and you know I love dogs anyway, so I probably just like you know try to cuddle them while they chew my face <laughs> off. So yeah, I would not succeed in the in the hunt at all. Okay. So all that being said, I guess it uh, it just um, remains now for us to rank this guy. And where do you think it should go? Well, it's definitely high up. I mean, it's yeah. alarmingly high up. Uh, the highest guards book we have is Feet of Clay, and don't know about you, but I think this outranks Feet of Clay. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think um, I don't know. I think there's more. It's just more standout moments in it for me than, than Feet of Clay. It's. I never would have thought, because after the reaction we had after reading Feet of Clay, I remember thinking, wow, this is so ambitious, but this in itself is also so ambitious, and it it's a two-hander in that it does so much with the emotional and narrative core, but also the thematic elements are really, like, it's a real turning point for the book, because it brings it into the modern era that all the preceding books follow this kind of format, as opposed to, you know, still kind of languishing in the... Tolkien era it's kind of no it's a modernised Tolkien yeah. era now <laughs> yeah so, uh, and it builds on a lot of Fida Clay's strengths like the stuff with Chiri and with Angua and the conflicts they have and so on um, it's looking into subspecies as part of species like you know I like how yeah Men at Arms Feet of Clay and this book have just built upon each other and like I mean feet, I mean, Men at Arms I remember us being really impressed by the fact that wow it looks like racism but like it did it in a really broad way, and then Feet of Clay went into it further, and now this one has gone even further again by what we consider to be our race, as opposed to like what you know, very simply just what things are. Yeah, you know? yeah. I think there's something impressive too that Feet of Clay does a great job of juggling a lot of like showcasing huge amounts of the watch and juggling all these different character uh, stories and and so on, and this manages to do something similar. But does it outside of Ankh-Morpork? Mm. So it, it kind of, you know, it does that while establishing this setting of Uberval and establishing it wonderfully, vividly and atmospherically too. Mm. Um, yeah. the so is it, is it better than Lords and Ladies? Then I'd love to say yes. I really would because I'm just excited by the idea of. I'm not because I don't like Lords and Ladies. I loved that book, but you know, it's been up there for so long. It's almost the case of. You know, fatigue is setting in. I want something to knock it off. But even though this book is excellent and, like, the margin is so thin, I don't think it knocks it off the pedestal. There's still there's still a few problematic elements. Well, not even problematic, but there's... It's just, you know, it just doesn't reach that golden standard that Lords and Ladies did. Like, that was so quintessentially Pratchett, you know. It balanced the characters so well. It had a really engaging story. Like it felt really climactic and exciting. Yeah. It had a strong theme running through it. It was just, it's it's very close to perfection. And yeah, that, that's it. You could say so much of the, the praise you've rightfully heaped on Lords and Ladies. You could also heap on Fifth Elephant, but uh, there's just like the odd thing that lets Fifth Elephant down. Like like Angua kind of seeming to fade to the background quite early in the book, and an odd sort of structural. Thing where her and Carrot just disappear for a while, and then mm. even the colon plot disappears towards the end and, until the very end when, when Carrot goes back. Which I understand that like he's using that to relieve the tension throughout, and then as we get to the end game, he just wants to keep all our adrenaline pumping as we 
read about you know how things climax in Uberwald, but the fact that the climax goes on for so long and all of it's exciting means that when I was reading, at least I became very aware of mm. oh, this is something feeling really weird that we're not ha- like what's what's happened with Colin and the rest of them now mm. as well because I, I feel like that. Um, I mean, I don't know what it would do, but it, it's not like that. That's left at a point where we feel you're where, where like the last scene you get with Colin and Nobby before Carrot comes back at the end. It it doesn't feel as if a pain is put in that, and you think, oh well, that's that plot line, you know, resolved or mm. put on hold or whatever. It, it, um, there's there's also it, it's like small uh, the odd character thing is a uh, said like. Um, it isn't a huge thing, but I thought Red Shoe seems just a bit uh, a bit bland. He's a policeman, but he's undead, mm. um, like an incompetent policeman at that, as opposed to the sort of colourful, earnest, po-faced activist he, he was earlier. Um, but yeah, so I think what separates Swords and Ladies is that for the three main characters that manages to have these wonderful uh, climaxes and arcs and uh, things to do, and then even for the minor characters like Red Cully and Varence and just the people of Lankra, and maybe Fifth Elephant like slightly lets some of its characters down mm. while serving others uh, wonderfully. And again, it's it's marriages are really fine. Like uh, the the Rolling Stones are playing Crow Park tonight, and I read a thing of the the Guardian on the way out there ranking all their albums. And when you get to the top four, and you've got Let It Bleed, Sticky Fingers, Beggar's Banquet, and Exile Main Street, you could rearrange them in any order, and you'd find you know it, it wouldn't seem in any way egregious. And this is somewhat similar where we're finding these like hair tin uh, margins to separate the quality between two absolutely excellent mm. books. And yeah. then, but in this case, I think it might be hair tin, but it's still there. I think Lord yeah. it's just that little bit better. Like it's 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 a tiny thing. Like it's it's kind of ironic that um, if it wasn't for the fact that we were comparing it to Lords and Ladies, like it would be very easy to put this at the top. I mean, what you were saying about. Um, uh, you know, structurally being slightly off. I mean, if it was just the fifth elephant I was talking about, I was like, no, but they make the right choice not to focus on Colon or Nobby because, you know, you want to focus on Vines, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. And the only thing that, that puts it below uh, Lords and Ladies is the fact, yeah, but they juggled it, and they managed to keep it balanced and make a great story, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's still a great story, and that's what matters in the fifth elephant, but just Lords and Ladies managed to do more with what they had. And that's the, the great thing is... um. Do you know the way we kind of categorize it as the guards and the witches? Yeah. The guards, like, the main characters of the guards really, I think, are Vimes and Carrot, really. Like, they're, and even to a certain degree, it's really just Vimes. So they're, yeah. He's the key focus. Well, the closest it was to, to Carrot was Men at Arms. Mm. Um, and for a while, it seemed like he'd, he'd feature more here, but again, he does kind of uh, but that's the uh, thing. Fade, fade a bit later. Because you're looking at it in terms of the guards, there's and like there's so many guards now, you kind of think, well, loads of people need to be served. Like you know, even we someone we didn't talk about was Buggy Swires. Oh yeah, yeah, he talks the, of the, the gnome. Yeah, and like he's just there, and he's just comic relief, and it's fine. But you're also kind of thinking, but he's part of the guards now. I wonder how he's going to develop in later books. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas with the witches. Uh, now obviously we this wasn't the case in Carpe Juggalum or Degalum. It's uh, it's always three. So you know uh, it's a balancing act between Granny Weatherwax, Nanny Og, and Magrath, and all three of them have a wonderful arc. The whole, I mean, like Magrath has the whole she's always seen as a wet hen, but then she goes out, becomes a full battle armored queen, and like mm. she fights for her kingdom, and that's perfect arc for her. 
Nanny Og, who we've always sidelined as just being like the comic relief, she's the one who summons the long man, who basically, in the end, brings down the Queen of the Elves. Yeah. And then, of course, you have Granny Weatherwax, who faces down the Queen of the Elves, and it's just, it's she has this wonderful introspective moment where she's coming to terms with the fact that she's kind of a lonely old woman. But, um, you know, that's not important. It's what she does that counts. It's, the entire act is great. Oh, two things on... Um, uh, Lords and Ladies that stand to its quality as well. Listener got in touch with us on uh, Twitter. Kate at uh, DK Chen um, mentioned there are two things we missed in our uh, episode of Lords and Ladies was uh, Diamanda isn't dead at the end. There's a comment about her getting along with Ponder who stayed to study the stones. Um, oh. And also, and, and this is really good, the horseshoe Nanny brings into the Elf King's realm isn't just a symbol of the progress of humanity, it's the horseshoe of Binky that Jason Og got earlier hence the iron that can go anywhere um, yeah. uh, and I, I, I was impressed uh, again we missed we missed both those but I thought well that stands to the depth of that book that we missed those yeah, particularly the second one like you know the, the first one's kind of important like an important character the second one is a really clever bit we missed it and still thought it was, we still thought it was incredible <laughs> so yeah this yeah. just goes it's a testament to how good that book yeah. is um, actually one of our listeners did say that uh, he thought this book is like Vimes in like the watch in a witch book like in terms of the setting and mm. you know the stuff they have to resolve and there is an element to that about it and perhaps that's why it, it finishes uh, or kind of ranking ahead of the other watch books because it seems that much more refreshing yeah without, yeah without in a way that I suppose the closest is the witches in a watch book is Masquerade um, and yeah. yeah this is the watch in a witch book it's and it's strange though because like in many ways this feels like correcting the mistakes of Jingo. Mm-hmm. because uh, I feel like a jingo was, okay, we need to refresh it, we need to do something completely different, and a lot of that is just very simply taking Vimes out of Ankh-Morpork, but uh, it just didn't work that well in Jingo. It was just a bit hammy. Uh, it was fine, but, was, you know, this yeah, this one was this one was just thematically strong, and I really appreciate it. So. Yeah, no. yeah, new number two, then. Fifth Elephant, ahead of Feet of Clay, behind Lords and Ladies. Would highly yeah, recommend yeah. to anybody if they haven't read it in a long time because yeah, neither of us had for whatever reason. We we read it the once and it faded to the background, and we're both long time Discworld fans. So if you're like us and you know it, it just like had this one wasn't prominent in your head, definitely give it a reread. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's terrific. Uh, so that brings us to a close for this week. If you want to get in touch with us, please do. We're on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, if you look up uh, Radio Morpork. Uh, you can email us at radiomorepark at gmail.com you can go to our website radiomorepark.wordpress.com where we have all of our episodes as well as uh, the record of the list and some other cool stuff and um, we're available to download on uh, SoundCloud on iTunes on Podcast Addict on a a host of other um, podcast streaming services have we got the t-shirts yet? we have not got the t-shirts we have not got the figurines we have not got the commemorative commemorative Radio Morpark Cologne but I'm working on it <laughs> I am working on it um, so yeah um, at least we're consistent yeah. <laughs> are you there until next time thank you and good night good night all